0: Greetings, and all ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from Outer, from outer space. space. This episode will contain TFOS 982 to 995. And as always, I hope that you enjoy Tales from Outer Space 982 The Black Friar, written by Osso Alosso In my time, it was seen as a dangerous in many parts of the Unity to befriend a Terran. They had a knack for judging the sincerity of each other, but they were new to us and we didn't share that same insight. It had been 50 Terran years since they came here, and even still, it was a gamble for any other species to take a Terran as a companion. I took a gamble and was rewarded by finding an honest one. I gained a familiarization with Terrans that many species wanted, but never would take the risk to have. I saw the better parts of their species by being exposed to the worst parts of who they were. Terrans can deal death without so much as a second thought, but that brutality juxtaposed their need for justice and the redemption of evil. Terrans are a dichotomous species. Before the Discord War, Terrans had few interplanetary diplomats and even fewer governing bodies. They were a new species in the galactic reality, and were struggling to find their place. This struggle allowed a lot of leeway for the less desirable elements of their people to manifest. Raiders, pirates, deceitful souls who exacted usury, and are more slavers than the Unity had seen since its founding. They operate in the shadows, just outside the reach of the Unity fleets. Despite the best efforts of their fledgling governments to distance themselves from the rogue factions and change opinion, Terrans were widely detested for the visible wounds they left on Unity Colonies. What Unity citizens didn't see was the actual civil opposition from Terrans themselves against these actions. Before any declaration, before the Terran Abolitionist Treaty, Terran groups bombed slaver colonies and glossed slaver moons. They constantly freed slaves and gave them sanctuary on their own worlds until they could repatriate them to their home and go back to and if there was no way for them to go, the Terrans integrated them into their own societies and homes. It was on the ship of one of these opposition groups that I met my Terran friend. I was asked by the Unity Council if I'd join a Terran crew to root out slavers as a test for future larger fleets. I happily agreed. I was not prepared for the peculiarity of this joint venture. I arrived at the ship, the Donna Sprayer de and discovered that it was largely staffed by Terran religious order, who were referred to by the civilian members as the Black Friars. This group was under a direct authority of some quasi-religious government, ruled by a man in a very pointy head covering. All the other Terran government's heads had some kind of treaty with this uh, Vatican. I never grasped the full nature of how this worked. But from the best I could tell, it was a Terran tradition that they all honored. Their captain was named Raul Orasto Lacento, and was hard for many species to renounce his name, and especially hard for me, as my tongue was a quarter the size of a Terran's, and so I called him Rara. He was an unassuming man, and his large black robes concealing his well-used blaster. Despite such an average Terran appearance, in comparison to his fellow friars, he was anything but. They had soft skin and soft bodies. They looked like scholars and priests, but Rara was more muscular than the rest. He kept his head fur cropped close to his skin, and his face full sharp angles and scars. His arms were larger and more muscled, and he had most peculiar large calluses between his thumb and his first finger, through which he constantly moved a large string of beads. Others on the ship who were part of his order wore beads around their waist under their robes or on their arms, and used them to pray the same prayers. But Rara's set seemed longer, and his prayers were always in silence while he worked the beads through his fingers. I later learned that the Terran religious tradition was not as generational as it was in unity. Rara did not come from a religious family, but converted shortly before he took his oath to the friars. I made my rounds and acquainted myself with the ship, and prepared for the day as we were going to board a slaver ship that Rara had been tracking, my introduction to the Terran battle was quick. Rara was brutally calculating in his attacks on slaves. He had a foresight sight about their actions that was hard to believe. He was always one step ahead, minimizing damage and loss, and always there to help the slaves after It was fascinating. The Terran ability to compartmentalize their minds is now well known, but then it was still one of those new, fascinating things that kept us wondering what else they could do. These Terrans can exist as if there are multiple people expressed in a single body. Even the act of manually learning a new language can manifest a whole new person in them. Different, in tone, taste and manner than when speaking in their native tongue. Rara was a living example of this. He had a penchant for alien tongues and was quick to pick them up and emulate the mannerisms. It gave him an advantage when dealing with the slaves and the trauma that they'd been through. His compassion and gentleness was in stark opposition to his capability for efficient violence. While attacking slavers, he wore death like a cloak, and he was far too comfortable with the warmth of that cloak than a holy man should ever be. And always, after eradicating the slavers, it seconds, he would change, and the soft light of hope and peace would follow him while freeing slaves. They would walk onto the Ordonas, passing the boxes of slaver tokens from previously freed slaves. It was one of the written rules of slavers that Terence picked up on, and it persisted even when slaves changed hands. They were always forced to wear the token of their first enslaver, a kind of tribute to their first master. Every time we freed captives, they would rip that token from their neck, wrist, or ankle, wherever their enslaver made them wear it. Small pieces of metal, bones from previous slaves, coins or bolts from ships, a myriad of items all representing their loss of individual freedom. We continued on like this for months. Identify, kill, set free, and transport to Terran worlds. While the work was noble, it was hard to stay focused when the sheer number of slaves we were seeing. The last slaver ship we boarded was set to meet another for transfer of slaves. We waited just outside the meeting point and then jumped into and out of FTL on top of the slaver ship and fired and disabled their engines. We blew through the airlock with blasters at the ready. There was silence and darkness to meet us on the other side. Rara had no problem navigating before the lights kicked back on. I thought it strange that he had such an unsettling knack of getting around these ships. We rounded a corner and blast of fire struck the bulkhead next to my face. Rara leapt forward and shot down the slaver who'd fired the shot. He lingered over the body and I went forward clearing the ship with some of the other Adonis crew behind me. We made our way to the slavehold and disengaged the locks. We were sorting them and getting their information as we guided them back to the Adonis. Rara was still standing there over the dead slaver. Then I heard a scream from a young Bulgarian. She was running straight at Rara. She slammed into his chest and tried grabbing his blaster. I leapt on her and pulled her off of him as he stood up. I spun her around and I told her that it was going to be okay. We were here to help. She looked at me with so much confusion. Then I heard a small snap from her wrist and looked down to see Rara pulling a small wooden bead that had been tied around her hand. He unlatched his prayer beads and dropped it onto the loop. It matched the others perfectly. He looked back at me as his eyes began to leak, and it was then that I finally understood why he always seemed to step ahead, why he could anticipate slaver actions, why he seemed to know these ships, and why he was so comfortable. With death. My Terran companion had been a slaver. Today, Terrans are honored for their actions during the Discord War. Their character was never questioned after that. I honor them for that too. But before the war, before they sacrificed a billion of their own lives to protect 10 billion of ours, before we saw the best of everything they can be, in the midst of the worst, there was a former slaver praying in silence, redeeming himself one bead at a time. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 983. Story number one. The Highest Form of Treason, written by Eddie Eddie. The Terran looked up at the high justice of the intergalactic union of species and smiled. No one liked it when the Terran smiled. I always did that when things were going to go or had gone badly for someone or something else. So, to clarify, unless the Terran Confederations' terms of surrender are absolute, the Marked will not accept a surrender and will treat all Terran vessels as pirate or military vessels. He didn't wait for confirmation. He knew that it was the case. This was just a formality. In that case, I would like to submit these documents with the universe, smiling. You will find the terms of a full surrender. There was silence. What had just happened? The Terrans had surrendered without a fight. What was this? You will also find a full inventory of the Confederation's resources and forces. The High Justice looked over the papers, then sputtered. Huh? What is this? Hey, Eight pencils, six chairs... There's, "'There's nothing here.' He glared at the Terran, who only smiled wider. "'Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, did I forget. Uh, see this here?' He produced yet another document from the volume stack next to him. "'It is a declaration of the results of a rather nasty rebellion that happened a little while ago. The Terran Confederation was reduced a little more than a tiny listening station on the outskirts of space.' Also attached is a notice of withdrawal from the Union. He handed over another small pile of paper. There was yet more splattering, and the entire court erupted into chaos. Finally, the judge recovered his voice. You have no evidence of this rebellion until proof is submitted, all you... Now the grinning Terran cut him off with a rustle of paper and a slight cough. (coughs) I.U.S. Law section 177811-6, subsection 8b. Any evidence of warfare, legal matters, transgressions, or similar events are to be inspected and confirmed by the presenting party and will be treated as fact. The lawyer put down the paper. Such law was invoked by the Mahakt for their Quasabelli and now-dissolved confederation, despite protests from all other involved parties. He smiled sweetly at the High Justice. Here is the recording of the rebellion, at least as best as could be by cameras active at the time. He presented a small memory chip and set it down on the table. In reality, it just contained a very long, very loud recording of a specific human song. The justice suppressed another bout of spluttering and was slowly going blue in anger. This was supposed to be a humiliation of the Terrans, putting them back in their place under the Union. This will not stand. This, this is treason. The Terran actually laughed. (laughs) I guess to tyrants the highest form of treason is freedom. He said and handed over a rather large stack of papers. Upon closer inspection, it was easy to see that the font was so small that one would need a magnifier to read it. The paper was also double-sided. Humanity is no longer a confederation, union, or any such thing. Each human ship is its own sovereign. This is a unified aid agreement between all human starships, colonies, space stations, and outposts. Excluding the listening posts, there remains of the Terran Confederation, obviously. If you wish to deal with humanity, you must come to an agreement with each ship captain, station commander, fleet admiral, etc. On their own terms. The High Justice looked about, ready to explode. Meanwhile, the human had picked up a rather large case and set it down under the desk. This you makes you all pirates? Treasonous pirates? The Justice finally found his words. The human raised an eyebrow. Does it now? Well, then, you'll be needing these, he said and presented another sheath of paper as he picked up a tricorn hat from the case and put it on his head. The lawyer, our pirate, was trying very hard not to laugh. He'd been wanting to do this in court for years. (laughs) You'll find, as agreed by over 90% of the galaxy's pirates, the newest form of pirate code, and as for union law... I can't be bothered to remember the number, but who cares? I'm a pirate now. The union will permit non union members to dress as a standard for them in formal settings. As the human was talking, he was pulling things out of the trunk a very long, heavy coat with the silvered buttons, a waist holster with what appeared to be a heavy caliber pistol, and strangest of all, a metal blade, about three and a half foot long and slightly curved. Additionally, when an outside species or other group is examined in Union law, they may request a judgment and trial in line with their species. Now you will find that code that the defendant of any accusation may choose a trial by court of their peers, or may choose to face the accuser in a sword duel. He pulled out the second blade and placed it on the High Justice's desk, before walking back to the chest. And putting out an eye patch and putting it on i request trial by sword he said grinning like a madman the entire court which had been silent aghast at the human's tenacity and gall of doing such a thing exploded to noise shouts yells jeering and cheering it was utter chaos the constant banging of the high justice on the desk took a good five minutes to bring the courtroom back to order the justice itself was apoplectic with rage, spitting and trying not to swear. It took the creature another three minutes to go from incapable of talking to a more moderate, seething state. Get out of my cart, the creature said, trying to keep its tone calm and even. The human smiled and raised a hat in polite thanks. Oh, uh, and um, one more thing. The human pirate sat at the doors turning to face the assembled dignitaries. They looked confused at the human as the human grinned. You may want to head back to your own ships. He snapped his fingers as the entire station went red and alarms started going off. The last words that were heard was the human gloating as he walked down the corridor. (laughs) We pirated the life support. (laughs) End of... Story story number two. This, this is a human. Written by Eclipse. So, uh, what is it? Asked a very tall, yet spindly insectoid-like creature. Antennas twitching in confusion. Nurse, said an even taller bird-like creature, covered in blue and black feathers, with massive feathery wings. Is a human... The bird held a small, pink-skinned creature in front of it like a youngling showing its brood mother something that interested it. The human was small, only reaching the insect's waist or the bird's thigh. It wore strange black fabric that hugged its upper form and loosely hugged its pants. Uh Uh-huh. And, uh, what does that human do exactly? The insect asked. It does loads of stuff. Most importantly, however, it does this. The bird set the human down and pulled out the laser pointer, aiming it at the thick metal wall across the room. The human's eyes locked on to the wall, and when the bird whistled, it charged across the room in a blinding speed and put a massive dent into the wall. The human walked back over to the bird, who picked it up and sat it on a large blue shoulder. The human's lips parted, revealing two rows of white teeth. The bird flapped its wings once, and the human quickly closed its mouth, almost looking ashamed of itself as the bird shot it a glare. The bird looked across the table at the insect, idly scratching at the human's hair before speaking. This is a human. Humans are Galactic Concord's newest member species, and also its new weapon. And, as you can tell by the rather large dent in the Duritanium wall over there, they are very strong and also durable. The little buggers can take point-blank shots from anti-tank weapons. You should see what they can do with some power armor. The bird sighed happily as the human started scratching behind her ears, wings flapping in comfort as her eyes closed. The insect started shifting in its seat, uncomfortable with the bird and the human's antics. Why are you showing me this? The bird's avian eyes lit up as it spoke. Well, Ambassador, unless you want us to set these little buggers onto your precious empire, let's start talking peace. So, um, you think we fooled them? The human said as he rode on the bird's shoulder out of the building. Well, this treaty I'm holding should give you an answer. Little bugger, you probably scared the insect out of its chitin. The very tall bird said. The human smirked a little, and his eyes trailed down to the bird's form until it reached the laser pointer hanging on her waist. Was the laser pointer thing really necessary? The human said as he turned his head towards the galactic Concord ambassador's vessel. The sleek silver hull surrounded by armed guards, all of who dwarfed the human. The bird shrugged his shoulders, wobbling as the human grabbed onto the sick neck to stop himself from falling off. Eyes full with amusement. Hey, it helps sell the look. The human and bird chuckle as they boarded the cruiser, and it took off, flying off into the orange sky. End of story. Tales from Outer Space, nine hundred and eighty-four. Story number one: The Human Carnival, written by Rosie 13 Gullen hated carnivals. Actually, that was a lie. Cullen hated large crowds and the attention the rare and exotic species, humans, would inevitably receive. What he wouldn't give to be back home in his boredom, reading fan fiction comics about pocket monsters TM, and trolling Reddit threads. But his one and only friend on the whole planet had insisted. And Cullen knew that Ib wouldn't have the courage to go alone. They were like that. Two outcasts sticking together, because each other was all they had. Colin was the one of only three humans on the planet. Ib was a cripple. Three of his eight tentacles had been severed in an accident in his youth, and he was very self conscious about it. It didn't help that everyone would always stare. It helped them both to feel like the crowds were looking at their friend and not themselves. The carnival was new in town, and according to Ib, it would stay for a week or so before disappearing again for a few years. Last time, they had both been too young to go unattended, so they had acted uninterested. Looking around now, just inside the front gate, it was hard to not feel a little interested at what was on offer. Cullen led the way to the nearest hover coaster, but was promptly denied due to Ib's condition. Bastards! He'd hoped the whole day wasn't going to be like this. Ibb suggested something more sedate, like a petting zoo. Psst! That was for young kids. But he wanted his friend to have a good time. That was why he was here, after all. Ib and Cullum waited in the short line, before being let into the enclosure with some skinny reddish lamb things. They looked like they were being forcibly petted by every juvenile to pass through the front gates all morning and were very skittish. One reluctantly allowed Ibbet to pat it, but after a quick sniff in his direction, not a single one would come close to Cullen, not even when he offered them some animal feed that he purchased. Specious bastards! Just because he was an omnivore and everyone else wasn't. He would just grab one and get a quick pat, get his money worth. Unfortunately, the lamb thing started bleating frantically at his approach almost trampling one of their own number in the haste to scatter. The attendant, who had been busily chatting to a co-worker, told Cullen to get out of the enclosure, or they would call security. Reluctantly complying, the frustrated Cullen and bemused Ib made their exit to more stairs than usual. After wandering around for a while, they ended up in the sideshow. I was much better. There was less people in this part of the carnival. His friend quickly eyed up the strength-testing machine in the middle because there was no cue. Cullen agreed. The young alien woman attending it was rather pretty. If he squinted a bit. Ib knew that his friend Cullen was strong and offered to let him go first. He declined, knowing that if he wanted the attendant to pay him any attention, he would have to have a baseline score to beat. After a few credits changed hands, Ib lifted a large, plush novelty mallet over his head and forcibly hit the horizontal target. The machine went crazy, lights and sounds indicating a good but fair score. Fitting chuffed, he handed the mallet to Cullen. With a quick smile, more for the attendant than his friend, Cullen swung the mallet overhead at the target and broke the machine. No, more like obliterated it. Barts had been flung outwards from the impact, smoke poured from what remained. The pretty attendant slowly gaped in shock. Everyone nearby had stopped what they were doing to stare incredulously at the scene. Security came running with a fire suppressant in hand. That, thankfully, wasn't needed. Now Cullen had to hope that he wouldn't be asked to pay for the damage. After a short but stern conversation with the head of the sideshow section... Cullen rejoined Ib and suggested they find some lunch. Fortunately, the carnival would take no action against him as hitting the strength tester was kind to the point. The attendant had no idea that it had needed to be recalibrated for humans. Cullen didn't like the idea that he'd gotten a girl in trouble. He felt rather mad about it. They found a vendor they liked the look of, selling some sort of fried lettuce vegetable, and looked for somewhere to sit they settled on a patch of grass some distance away. As they ate, a small crowd had started to gather. Some had cameras and recording devices. One was dressed up in what he supposed was a crude human costume. Human watchers, the alien equivalent of bird watchers slash furries. Cullen hated being watched like some sort of exotic animal. For a moment, he considered asking security to throw them out for making him uncomfortable, but knew that they never would. They were paying visitors to the carnival, after all. He recognized some familiar faces amongst them, as his personal fan club was hardly new to him, but knew better than to acknowledge anyone. They would promptly faint with excitement at talking with a human. Or get aroused. Neither outcome was good. And they had arrived in time to watch him consume three times as much as any other individual around them. Bastards! They would likely follow him and Ebb around for the rest of the day. The growing crowd behind them, Cullen decided one more activity before heading home. Ib agreed. He didn't like being watched any more than Cullen did. He selected a simple hoop toss game. Get as many hoops over the vertical target as possible in the time limit and win a stuffed purple giraffe animal toy. Simple enough. Ib felt that he did well. The trick was not to rush so you didn't miss or have the hoop bounce off the target. He had scored three. Not great, but still enough for the bottom tier of rewards. Meanwhile, Colum scored thirteen. Show-off. That was three more than was required for the highest pride. No wonder the crowds of oohs and ahs had been getting louder. With the stuffed prizes in hand, they walked together towards the front gate. The pursuing crowd had grown so big that had its own carnival security assigned to it. Once there, they said their goodbyes to each other, and Cullen gave Ibb his stuffed toy. He hoped his friend had a good day, despite it ending early and all the other setbacks. He knew that Ib understood. The cameras went crazy as they shared moment of close friendship. With a sudden realization, Cullen knew that most of the crowd was there for him, not the attractions. No wonder the staff was so irritated at his presence. He was competing with their business. He was a living, breathing human carnival. End of story. Story number two A persuasive argument written by Dan and Angel. Human diplomat on a joint call to humanity's five nearest neighbors. Believe me when I say that I understand why you don't like the idea of creating a union. We each have plenty of grudges against each other. And we all think that we could take a bit more of the pie in the coming chaos if we go it alone. But here's the problem. Humanity. Yes, Ambassador Twixie, my people, we are the problem. If humanity goes it alone, we won't have that calm, sober voice of reason telling us to think things through. Giving us a nice cup of tea or coffee instead of holding our beer and slapping us with a newspaper when we get some of our funnier ideas. Do you remember what humanity was getting into before we were contacted by the Galactic Union? Yes, I'm talking about the black hole missile that almost destroyed our sector of space, and the FTL engine that was designed to rip physics a new one. Fortunately, that only destroyed 20 uninhabited systems before we got pointed at the Andromeda Galaxy. And before you ask... Yes, some of our researchers are still studying it. They believe that they now know how to turn it off without destroying the universe. Thank you, Ambassador Marvers. We haven't forgotten the von Neumann swarm that was supposed to turn dead worlds into tropical island paradises. Yes, Ambassador, the people involved learned their lesson, and we're very sorry about your homeworld. But you must admit that you've made a fortune with the human tourism. There was also Project Space Kaiju, that none of us want to recall. Absolutely, no one, especially humans, want to go through another Mecha Christmas fiasco. Santa Claus is still banned on 23 of our colonies. Honestly, we could keep going all cycle with stupid things my people have done. So, um, do you want us to be left by ourselves? Bored, with no one watching over us as we do something stupid. Or do you want to make a nice little union where you can keep our worst impulses in check, and our nutty but mostly sane ideas will be shared with you and our violent, invasion-happy neighbors? I'm glad that we've come to an agreement. Now, um, let's start writing up the Constitution. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 985 Tales from Outer Space 987 Humans are scary. The First Terran Systems War Written by Ace Seru. When one thinks of human resilience, most minds recall the events of the Terran Systems War, the only two galactic conflicts humanity was ever involved in. It is my intent in this article to give you a brief overview of the events of the First Terran Systems War, namely, the cause and the results of the actions taken by the Keth, and their invasion of human territories. But in order to understand the Keth motives, one needs to understand what a Death World is. A Death World, as defined by the laws of the Galactic Concord, is a world in which one or more organisms or planetary irregularities threaten the existence of sapient creatures which reside on it. There are four classifications of Death Worlds. An Alpha-class Deathworld is a Deathworld in which there is only a singular threat, such as an apex predator that can readily hunt most galactic citizens, or a regularly occurring natural disaster, such as planet quakes or volcanoes. Though dangerous, the hazards of Alpha-class Deathworlds are few in number, and are unlikely to be encountered, even with multiple visits. Deathworlds are rare enough but most fall into the Alpha class. And species who evolved to sapiens on such worlds are often herbivores and are, as a species, generally indistinct from normal galactic standards in terms of physiology. Beta-class death worlds and death worlds that are more dangerous. Perhaps there is a single species apex predator that is far more common and numerous, likely to the point where said species pose an existential crisis to the native sapiens or a disease that is constantly evolving, making it resistant to medicines and natural immunities, or in some cases, a huge and continuous storm that has caused heavy winds for thousands of years and traveled across the surface of the planet, wreaking havoc across everything in its wake. Sapiens from such death worlds are considered normal to their biology and are generally amicable when socializing. But put into a situation that trigger a flight response, they would generally choose instead to fight, often to defend others. Delta-class death worlds are worlds that have multiple existential threats to sapient species. Predators, natural disasters, and disease are common on these worlds. So common, in fact, that at one time it was believed the environments of these worlds were so hostile, sapient life simply could not have evolved there. There have only ever been three species that evolved on delta-class death worlds, the first being the Crisken, who are now, for better or worse, extinct. The third will the Tadari, carnivorous reptilians, bipedal sapiens with four arms and two rows of razor-sharp teeth. The second is the subject of this article: the humans. Humans are bipedal omnivore primate species with two arms and no natural defenses. The only thing these three species have in common is that they consume meat. Whether partially or wholly, they eat other species to survive. But unlike the Crisken or the Tal'dori, the humans consider eating sapiens, and if any species, a taboo. I will only make a footnote here as to the last class of death world, Omega. Omega-class death worlds are worlds in which the environment is actively trying to kill life on the surface, such as worlds within the vicinity of a neutron star, yet still theoretically habitable with an atmosphere that is considered highly toxic even to Delta-class deathwolers, These worlds are only theoretical, and none have ever been observed occurring naturally. Back to the humans, when humanity first developed warp drive on their nuclear-powered starships, there was no great fanfare, nor was there any panic. The collective galactic community gave unanimous statement of Oh, neat! Another species to interact with. The panic only started when envoys discovered their homeworld. Terra was a Delta-class Deathworld. At the time, the galaxy's only interaction with Delta Deathworlders was the Crisken, whose stated goal was to consume all life in the galaxy. And it took a combined effort of all five major governments to put an end to them. No one wanted a repeat of the Crisken crisis. Yet, these humans seemed nice enough. They claimed to come in peace and wished to offer their goods and services for trade. Most other people, including the Keth, were wary of these humans. The Keth were the galactic oddity of all of their own, a carnivorous bipedal feline race that evolved on a normal world. When they first entered the galactic community, they were seen as an uncharacteristically benevolent. Actually, quite similar to humans in retrospect, But where the humans and the Keth differ is in the timing of the entry into the galactic community. The Keth entered during the time of relative peace, and so other species were much more accepting of their ways. When the humans entered the galactic community, it was right on the heels of the Crisken Crisis. Not even ten Solos had passed since the last Crisken world was invaded, and their kind exterminated. It wasn't something that we were particularly proud of but many felt that it had to be done. But now, here was this other species coming out of nowhere from a delta death world, just like the Crisken. You can hazard a guess at how the galaxy felt about this. Though many were fearful of the humans and their supposed tricks, some did risk accepting their trade agreements, and they were rewarded for it. Though this pacified some species, Most were still certain that the humans were lulling us into a false sense of security, where they would strike at us when we least expected it. The Keth were not about to let them strike first, fearing the worst of the situation. The Keth declared war on the humans. Within fractions, Keth's fleets were already engaged with human territories. They forced dozens of colonies to lay down arms and surrender without firing a single shot. These colonies were not prepared for war, and had not set up any defenses. So the surrender came quickly, though a few of their number would flee into the local foliage and flora of their various planet. The vast majority were put into slave camps, where they were manufacturing goods to help continue the war effort. It only took two lunars for the Keth fleet to reach Terra. The human fleets were impossibly outclassed in terms of weapons and shielding, True, coil guns and missiles have their place in combat, but against pinpoint accuracy of point-defense cannons and the magnetic pulse shields developed to fight the Crisken, the humans stood no chance. The population was enslaved, and the majority of the human combatants fled into the forests, jungles, and mountains. Some even fled into the sea using planetary vehicles specifically for underwater operations. These at which the humans were conquered gave pause to everyone involved. The Geth, along with the more paranoid races, had assumed that the humans had a massive fleet of conquest at their back, poised to strike as soon as they let their guard down. But to their shock, there was no such fleet, and now it seemed like the humans' previous greeting of, We come in peace, seemed a lot more tenable. The species that agreed to trade with the humans all condemned the Keth invasion, imposing heavy sanctions on their empire backed by the Galactic Concord. The entire war had been a heavy misstep for the Keth, but there were those willing to defend their actions. Having only seen one other example of Delta Wilders, the safe assumption was that humans would be the same as the Crisket were, and it was just bad luck on their end that they appeared right after the galactic crisis. Still, there were calls across the galaxy to return the territories taken by the Keth back to the rightful human owners. At this point, I should note, other than being a predatory and carnivorous species, the other defining trait of the Keth is their stubbornness. Instead of admitting that their war was wrong, they doubled down, insisting that the humans had to be hiding some sort of weapon of mass destruction or some fleet that was ready to strike against the galaxy. Anything to justify their unjustified invasion. So the Keth, despite their sanctions and the public outcry, maintained their occupation of the human worlds. This was a mistake. Not because of the outrage from the galactic immunity, but because of the tenacity of the human warriors. Soon, supply depots, cargo ships, and isolated outposts began being targeted by human warriors across all the occupied territories. In this way, the Keth ground forces had been introduced to human warfare. They would strike where the Keth were not prepared to meet them and melt back into the shadows. They would capture Keth weapons and use them against their occupiers. They would hide amongst the civilians, only striking where their own kind was safe. The occupation of human territories quickly became a quagmire. Politically, it made the Keth look bad. Tactically, it was said that there was a human with a rifle hiding behind every blade of grass. Financially, the Keth economy was ruined by these sanctions. After only one solar, the Keth abandoned their occupation of the human territories, returning it back to the various governments of humanity. Interestingly, When the Keth leaders were brought to tribunal before the Galactic Concord for their actions, and the leaders of humanity were given the chance to decide a suitable punishment for the Keth, they were merciful. Aside from reparations for the lost fleets and warriors, the humans merely demanded the sanctions on the Keth Empire be lifted, and that the Keth sign a trade agreement with every human faction. Men asked why the humans would ask for such gracious terms of punishment. One of the humans merely said, all in all, the occupation wasn't nearly as bad as it could have been. This left many to shudder at what horrors humanity had been through, that they can call the imprisonment of their entire population a forgivable act. It implied that what the humans did to themselves was somewhat far worse. That thought alone scared the member races of the galactic Concord. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 986 Story Number One Peace at any cost Written by Echoing Cascade Captain Nishmali was troubled. The war was not going well. Then again, it wasn't going badly either. As a matter of fact, the war just wasn't, well, going at all. A week ago, the Morind, long-time rival to his People of the Mist, had laid claim to a large, life-sustaining planet on the edge of their territory. His government's response was swift, decisive, and purely motivated by spite. They claimed it was their planet by some ancient prophecy that was still currently being forged to look authentic. The Mist had landed a small army on the north side of the main continent, while the Morind were in possession of the south. This would have normally been settled with the standard bouts of political posturing. A small skirmish here and there, and finally some sort of agreement no one involved would be happy with. What the human politicians call a good compromise. Yet, it was not meant to be. As it turns out, the banner was rich in soul crystals, the main resource needed for FTL drives. Worse still, the largest vein was situated in the middle of both armies. Before either army could secure it, a human cargo ship had an accident. Three thousand endangered animals from their home world were on board, and when the ship crashed, they were deposited on top of the mine. The humans apologized profusely and asked for some time to gather the specialists necessary to recapture the creatures. His people and the misc had no choice but to agree. The Mornid were military allies of the Deathworlders, and his people traded almost exclusively with them. No one bought the idea that this was an accident, though. The dumbest, most inbred noble either nation could proffer, still qualified as sentient, could see the humans wanted to avoid the old rivalry becoming an open war. But neither side could openly call them liars. Which suited Captain Ishmani just fine, actually. After all, the longer combat was avoided, the longer he and his troops could stay alive. Which happened to be one of his favorite pastimes. Yet, things were not going to last much longer, it seemed. After a week of waiting for the humans to gather the, uh, right handlers, Major Barshat had decided that it was high time to make his move. The man had tried to approach the creatures, which the humans insisted to be very territorial and somewhat aggressive. At first, he tried to reason with them, to no effect. He then tried to bribe them with food. This seemed to work, at least for a moment. As he tried to walk past them, one of the creatures attacked him and was quickly followed by several of his peers. The major survived, though he and those pulled him out while they were severely injured. The demons didn't so much as bite as rip pieces off of anyone that got close enough to them. Worse, they gave chase and even tried to attack the armored vehicles. Perhaps the humans were not lying when they claimed the need for experts to deal with these abominations. The Major recuperated in a healing pot and, to his credit, only looked somewhat traumatized by the experience. He gathered all the troops to push through the animals with tanks and flame units in order to frighten them away. These monsters either don't care or are personally insulted by the use of deadly weapons in their immediate vicinity. Most animals see a large tank roll their way and they scatter— you fire a plasma famer at them and they can't run fast enough in the opposite direction. Not these ones. The Morins, who had been watching the scene had at first found it funny and then tried to join the demons in attacking us. Probably thinking that they would see them as allies. Big mistake. The creatures didn't see them as anything more than extra enemies to chase away. On the plus side, we won't be going to war today either. Or any time soon, for that matter. On the other hand, both we and the Morins have suffered quite a bit of damage. Not many casualties, but the mental toll was large. I wouldn't be surprised if they called the whole thing off. The creatures have increased their territory. Like conquering barbarians, they now lay claim to what used to be the misced and mourned outposts. The bastards actually look proud of themselves. Mere leaving the planet the next morning... No one argued against the decision. General Armstrong was reading in the report on the missed morned Conflict of XN 2003. Thanks to fast thinking on his part, war was avoided and both sides were leaving the planet. Someone knocked on the General's door. General Armstrong, come in. It was his secretary, Pauline. She nodded a short salute and gave him a data pad. General Armstrong took it and scanned the title. Missed and Mourner joint demands. General Armstrong. And this is... Secretary Pauline. Reparation demands for war crimes for the use of bioweapons. General Armstrong chuckled a bit and put the data pad in a nearby trash can. General Armstrong. (laughs) Ha! Come on! It was just a couple thousand ducks. How bad could it be? He looked at his secretary and she looked worried and wasn't leaving. She clearly had more to stay. General Armstrong, Is something wrong? Secretary Pauline, Well, sir, the animals that were to uh, crash on XN 2003 were supposed to be ducks, but the officers simply couldn't get their hands on the numbers we needed, so... uh, She stopped talking. This was a woman who routinely informed him of system-wide wars and casualties in the billiards. The General was worried now. General Armstrong... What did we dump on that planet? Secretary Pauline. Three thousand, um, Canadian geese, sir. During their nesting season, General Armstrong didn't move, blink, or breathe for a couple seconds. Then he fished the data pad out of the trash can and began to read it. He quickly stopped. General. Pauline, please contact the diplomatic corps ASAP and call my personal lawyer, please. End of story Story number two Human Bullcrap Written by Timpanzee Writes Kadulankian Military Academy Course Human Bullcrap 101 Rating required Humans are exempt Instructor Commander ulkak retired Commander Ulkak stood in front of the class as the students for the semester filtered in She was happy to see that most species of the Confederation were represented. No group was more boring to teach than a bunch of hulking males from war races with two brain cells to share between them. There was the tiny Galacticans, the frail the Toxus, and the forever unusual Talalops, looking for a spot to sit. Once all the seats were filled, Commander Lack continued to wait as the front of the class saying nothing. The hall was one of the biggest the academy had to offer, and very noisy. The students were the future military leaders of the confederation, and they were abuzz with excitement. This was their last required course before graduation, and the only course that they were required to take this year. Still, Commander Lac stood silently at the front of the auditorium, staring down any student who dared to look away. Slowly the noise in the room began to falter. Some students, especially the ones she'd stared down, looked around nervously. The Military Academy was famous for its disciplined instructors, who conducted the classroom the same way they had commanded their troops, for every instructor had wartime experience. But Lelac just stood there offering nothing to the students but a firm stare of her deep red eyes. Soon... The class fell deadly quiet. All eyes pointed forwards towards the infamous instructor. Little hadn't tried to be infamous on purpose, but enjoyed it anyway. He kept the annoying first years away. Finally, a brave republic spawn, after looking all around for some being else to do it first, raised their hand immediately, and a large black billboard-sized screen behind Little erupted with light. On the field of black, were blindingly white letters. Put your fucking hand down, Connor! Everyone turned to the Republic sport who instinctively retreated into their shell. Almost as one, they turned back to the commander, Lilac, murmuring a growing intensity again. They were all talking to each other again, trying to figure out what exactly was going on. Hello, everyone, Lilac said calmly. Welcome to Human Bullcrap 101. The bathrooms are out the back door and to the left. Again, the room fell deadly silent. Confusion colored the faces of the students whose species allowed Lillelac to recognize the emotion. She just assumed the rest were equally confused as well. Good. Kana, Lilac said to the student who'd raised their hand. Come down here. The rebellious spawn's head crept out of their shell, looking both ways. All the other students were staring at them. Clearly uncomfortable, the rebellious spawn began to stand when Komona Lillilakak interrupted. ''This has been your first lesson into human bullcrap,'' Lillilak shouted. Gathering eyes back to the front of the room, ''Their name isn't Connor. That's obviously a human name. Regardless, none of you are talking. I have your undivided attention, and you now know to keep your guard up in my class.'' I got exactly what I wanted without any consideration as to the proper way to get it. That, my dear students, is some human bullcrap. The looks of confusion slowly changed to understanding. They'd most likely heard that this class was unorthodox from the last year's upper class beings, despite the ban on students discussing the course. Some students began to take notes. The large screen behind Lillicack lit up, with a list of names and large white words in the same font as before. "'Stop taking notes!' The flash of light from the screen grabbed the note-taking student's attention. Murmuring erupted throughout the room. "'What?' Commander Lillilac shouted. "'Did you think I didn't know your names? That I had to make up a name Connor? Did you think that I couldn't pick out specific students, their actions, and call them out directly by name?' The students with enough good sense looked abashed, and those that didn't still had their looks of confusion. The confused students weren't going to have a good time in the class. She'd see to that. Stop making assumptions, Hylkak continued. War is quintessentially unpredictable. Expect the unexpected. Fog of war and all of those other terrible sayings. There's a reason those sayings have survived this long despite being stupid and that's because they contain a grain of truth. And that grain of truth is more obvious with the humans than anywhere else. Someone tell me why the Confederation lost its first war against humanity, Lillicat said. No need to raise your hand, just answer. They, um, they possessed revolutionary new tactics that gave them an insurmountable advantage and the Federation couldn't overcome. A small Sempreka squeaked. Oh, Lillicat marveled. General Kov, I didn't realize you were in my class. Shouldn't you be teaching history right now? Also, since when are you a symparica? Lilikax gave her best impression of a human look that she was quite fond of. Sarcastic. Don't regurgitate. Have an original thought. Anyone else? The room looked around nervously. No one wanted to be next to the one to speak until the Rubenic spawn from earlier piped up. They uh, kept catching the Federation forces of God by being unpredictable and doing whatever it took to win. That's quite the original thought there, Commander Lillikak said. I guess I was right picking on you. The rest of you could learn something from Trilly here. A gasp escaped the rebellious sworn at hearing their name called out. Lillikak hadn't been bluffing. There's a reason this class is called human bullcrap and not human tactics or human strategy. Humans do whatever it takes to win. They'll put themselves through unbelievable bullcrap to win. Frankly, it's ridiculous what they'll put up with. Who here has seen the latest Brock Brockworth Visi film? Not a trick, just raise your hand if you've seen it. Still apprehensive, hands slowly came up until nearly everyone in the room signaled that they'd seen the Visi film. Lillicack, Would have been surprised if they hadn't. Busy films about human exploits were widely popular. And how cool was it when Sergeant McDavid broke his arm and couldn't use his rifle anymore. So he put his arm in a sling and kept fighting using only a knife. Heads shook up and down in a chorus or throughout the classroom. Except that's wrong, Lilikak scoffed. Humans are trained to fight and reload their Gauls rifles with only one arm. I saw it myself at the Battle of Monta. I was finned down with a human private. A damn private who could fight with one arm. Not that she had a choice. Her other arm had been ripped off by one of those bugs. The cat spit the word bugs. She got me to tie a string around the stump, cinching the blood, and stab her with morphine, a human painkiller. I took point. She covered my rear, and we got out of there. The trope of the noble human demanding to be left behind while the comrades escape is infuriating. A human will fight their way out from behind enemy lines, bleeding for the lost limb, before they give in to the bullcrap. Did she make it? The Semperica asked nervously. No, the lack said solemnly. Her name was Private Connor, and she bled out thirty feet from our lines. Save my life. Remember. "'Humans aren't invincible. They just don't give in to the bullcrap.' "'That is the core of this class,' Commander Linak said, recomposing herself. "'Humans will put up with and put themselves through an incredible amounts of bullcrap. "'They'll make up bullcrap plans to do it anyways. "'How are you supposed to counter a plan from a foe that doesn't follow their own damn plans? "'Because that's what you'll have to deal with if you ever fight against humans.' I fought against and alongside them, and I'll tell you this. War is bullcrap, and no one deals with bullcrap better than humans. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 987 Story number one. Humans are the masters of one thing. Written by dragonson 4 Humans, that curious race of people from a death world. A galaxy at large had been observing them for centuries before first contact was made, as they seemed to be an incomprehensible paradox. Everything they did, they didn't do. Everything they loved, they despised. Everything they fought for, they fought against. And so on. One of the few constants throughout their history was their various art forms. Painting is amongst their oldest art, with naturally sourced dyes on the walls of caves, showing basic pictures of daily life. The primitive ancestors of humans told their stories. They still used physical mediums to make their paintings, even after joining the larger galactic community. Sculpture was likely the next to evolve, as they developed tools that could cut and carve stone. Now, this is nothing new. Most sapien races followed a similar path when it came to the evolution of art. But most found their strength and stuck with it thousands of years ago to the exclusion of all other forms of art. You'd never see a sculpture by any avian race. You'd never hear a poem by a reptilian or amphibian race, for example. With humans, though, they appreciate all forms of art and still make all forms of art. Their classical age of sculpture, for example, was a point of contention amongst the galaxy as much of it totally nude humans, quite scandalous to the rest of us. But to humans, their own bodies are still a fascinating and beautiful thing. I personally feel that sort of innocence is sorely missed in the galaxy. Form and proportion seem to be the key points in those works of stone. But I digress. While humans have all forms of art, the one they are masters of is the one I've yet to mention. Music. From the most primitive rhythm, stomped out with feet or clapped out with hands, drummed on hollow and dried plants with hands or smaller pieces of the same plants, or on stretched and tanned animal hides stretched over similarly dead plants in various shapes and forms. Their oldest form of music might well be their own voices, singing praises to whatever they worship, singing of happiness, singing of sadness, singing because they have nothing better to do around the communal fire after a hunt. Music is a part of being human. My people, the Yeshua, being telepathic and empathic can feel the effects of any form of art on the emotional level on any sapient race. I had the opportunity to travel to the human homeworld and experience the emotions of their music brought out in themselves. I can honestly say, I will never be the same again. After signing all the paperwork, as the humans call it, and getting an appropriate environment suit from my species, I walked on Earth for the first time and immediately set out. My first experience with human music was a genre called metal, although the beat of the music nearly destroyed my ordinary senses. The wave of, well, can't exactly call it anger, it was more of a sense of power mixed in with a solidarity and joy. It was truly overwhelming. I felt ready to start a war by myself after a single song. After I recovered from metal, I tried their jazz, and that nearly broke me. When the Jisho breaks, they are no longer capable of feeling anything other than the last emotion that broke them. The musician of the saxophone, was practically bleeding remorse, regret, and loss into every note. Those were mirrored in every single member of the audience in the small room. Luckily, I managed to hold on to my sanity, but just barely. It took quite a long time in my isolation tank to recover from that one. But, by far, my favorite human music was there classical Centuries old and still played regularly by live musicians on actual physical instruments. To say nothing of all the countless times all of it had been recorded. And uh, music finished as no music is ever finished. Displace one note and there would be diminishment. Displace one phrase and the structure would fall. To quote one of the forms of art talking about the genre of music. I agree with the quote. And, in my opinion, the piece that embodies this the best is the 1919 Firebird Suite by Igor Stravinsky. I requested a smaller sample size for this one for fear of being overwhelmed again by even a small group. And a single human volunteered to sit and listen with me. Such a magnificent array of motions were brought out. Everything from hope to uncertainty to power to hate. To utter loss. To triumphant victory. I honestly didn't know there was an emotion until this. And others that, I honestly can't put a name on. Humans have a reputation of being a jackable trades type. They can do anything with acceptable results, and a few things with great outcomes. But when it comes to music, I personally recognize them as the only true masters in the galaxy. End of story. Story number two. High Maintenance, written by Rosie013. Investing in a human was the best decision my grandfather ever made. And just to really rub salt in the wound, he wasn't exactly known for his competent decision-making. I looked up from my drink to my patron across from me at the table, determined to draw the story out as long as I could. They had been buying me drinks all day, waiting for me to talk about this particular subject, my family's business, and the meteoric rise in the industry. More fool them. Almost everything I knew had already been written down under a false identity on the web, if he had ever bothered to look. But I wasn't going to turn down free drinks. The young face didn't yet know that I knew barely any more than he did. A keep-going hand signal appeared to dispel my drunken pause. My grandfather was an idiot of a very special kind. A lucky idiot. He was busy, as usual, turning our respected family plumbing maintenance business into a literal crap show. Bad contract deals, poor customer reviews, unpaid bills, even employee thefts, the full works. I'm sure we were only a few cycles short of being shut down for good. This is all before I joined the family business, of course. I was still the juvenile at the time. The patron opposite me poorly hid his impatience at my drunken retelling, signaling for more drinks to be brought over and gave the nicest, I agree, get on with it, smile. I returned the smile upside I'd been boring them with other, almost random topics for hours now. Then, one day, a greasy-faced human appeared, not at the office front, but just walked right into the storage bay out back and asked my grandfather for a job yeah, a human. Those ratty scavenger vermin that you can find on stations across the entire sector. Walked right up to the owner like it belonged there. At least, it wasn't begging for coin. Desperate for staff, my grandfather hired him on the spot, sent him out to his first task that day. an all the lunch make conversation worth of training, didn't trust him enough to hand over the tools either. The human would run off with the customer's money, and we would have another angry complaint to deal with. But he didn't. The last sentence was a touch more slurred than I should have liked. I must be pissed. Another drink landed in front of me. Ugh, why not? It turned out that this human was some sort of, uh, of, uh, crap magician. The stupid thing was never able to explain exactly how it fixed stuff, but it never failed to get the job done no matter how impossible. Our business started to stabilize and eventually started to outcompete the competition. The human worked cheap so long as we kept well-fed. I always remembered it covered in pimples and grime, with snack food of one brand or another half hanging out of its dopey face. How my parents let me get near such a disgusting thing as just a youngling, I'll never know. But anyway... My grandfather tried hiring other humans, but they always demanded too much money or couldn't handle the work. It was just this particularly grubby one that somehow didn't mind the bad reputation our family had, and could work wonders with piping. With the walls spinning, I wasn't right. Uh, The patron was leaning in eagerly now. It was probably time to give him what he wanted. Years later, I had just taken our new strong business from a retiring father, When the human approached me, I just blurted out his thoughts, as was its way. It was quitting. I was going to lose everything. Maybe if I played the business right, I could keep it stable for a short while longer. The human then said he had a friend who might be able to take his place. He had already invited him by later that cycle. When I met this new human, all suddenly became clear. You see, father taught me, unlike us noble scent-based beings... Humans are a visual species. You got to pay some attention to the gestures and colors when working with them. It was an ugly and skinnier than the older human, but they had one thing clearly in common. I leaned in towards my son like I was sharing the biggest secret in the galaxy, not just a family business secret. Both humans had red eyes. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 988. The Humans Broke It, written by You Sure I'm Not a Robot. Tex sighed and swore silently to his gods. They heard him and laughed since it was the same prayer every time. He moved quickly to cut power to the affected systems and sat silent for a moment. This used to be a once in a lifetime, an occasion for screaming and running around. But this tour, I taught him well. You have humans prepared to die, should have been written over his door. The human diplomat presented his usual apologies. The check cleared quickly, and all would soon be forgotten. Again. The humans would cheerfully upgrade the system they had broken and carried on, willing to take the fines, the warnings, the screaming, and the weeping neighbors and just throw money, coffee, or alcohol at anyone they had upset. They even sent their pets to hug and wag their tails at you. The humans ignored the um, connotations that had for any normal person that had a tail. They just kept breaking things, and he was tired. Sergeant, uh, why am I receiving this amount of credits? What happened this time? The voice was embittered as he felt. His commander wasn't a fan of the scaleless freaks either, but he was trapped by his rank. Sir, so they blew out the air conditioning on this side of the orbital. Then they blew out the geomorph functions on the parkland. Then they overwhelmed the medbay with injured human spectators. He worked down the list until he got to the worst But Then um, they blew out the grav plates and sent our staff into freefall. I have another list. Enough! Uh, I have now over 300 complaints from non human occupants. I can justify serious measures and even eviction. I don't even recognize a damn place anymore. These blasted creatures have twisted it so much. Send me the details. Tech hesitated. He hated to admit it, but in reality he intervened. Sir, we can't afford to do that. The humans may break stuff. A lot of stuff but they always build it back and they build it better than our budget could ever cover. Honestly, can't we just give the orbital to them and find somewhere quieter for the rest of us? I'd be happy to take a transfer. He didn't have much hope, but it was worth a try. His commander hissed down the comms. What? Never! I was hatched here, and I'll be damned if I'll see it in the hands of those lunatics. Sir... those lunatics are our biggest population and our biggest customers. We can't. He went on to his informal voice. Derek, you know that's bullcrap. It'll take me a few hours to repair and upgrade stuff, but then practically everyone will want to know what they did. Again, I suggest you start researching a human sport of ski killing and setting it. I may be wrong about the name, but they wear knives on ice. They seemed to love it, and they were laughing even when they were being taken to the medbay. Some of them turned up more than once. His commander was not inclined to have any further discussion. Sergeant! If I want your advice, I'll send you the forms required. In the meantime, I want estimates, and I want the damn orbital back to full power. Then he hung up. Crap! The slow trudge down to the power centers was interrupted by impatient humans who wanted to ski again. He still wasn't sure what the hell they meant, but his job was to reset stuff. If he walked slowly enough, the humans would have done it for him. They weren't even supposed to have the codes to the power center, but they seemed to treat that as a challenge. He sniffed to himself, not even a challenge, but a joke. They acted like he was a mascot and not an accredited sergeant with responsibilities. It was no surprise when he arrived to find three humans dismantling the grav system and arguing. They were always arguing. He leaned back and listened. Maybe he could learn what they were doing to his orbital this time. We can't build K2 on the orbital. Look, let's just get the slope up and running and then send the specs out and see what the others could do. Anyway, that would kill me in a day. I'm calling it a low alpine. One of the other humans grunted in reply. Fine. Beginner slopes it is. But it would be cool. I mean, we could even pull the atmosphere down to the very edge. See what we can really do. The older man sighed. Sure. And then you can bury me on that slope. He started pushing the ground plate back into position. The third human spoke softly. Maybe, maybe we just set it up so that we could, uh, not every day, just when we have a competition like the Olympics, only here. That seemed to cause a moment of thought. All of the humans stopped, mind spinning. Now we tie it into the biome controls, able to set it from sea level to whatever. Grenoble, maybe. They had the Winter Olympics, right? A slow nod from the older human Simple enough, I suppose. He pushed the grab plate down. But no fecking about with it, and you'd better hope this new wiring is good. I guess I'd better go tell. Then he spotted Tech. He smiled at the Xeno. Hi, uh, I was just on my way to see you. Someone must have left the door open and we were worried. He glanced at his co-conspirators as they put on suitably helpful faces. Tech let out a low grunt. Your assembly already paid for the damage. He was in the medbay at the time. He looked at the humans with a jaundiced eye. Apparently, he fell over. Twice. It took an hour to repair the damage and the first time, and then he fell over again. He shrugged and sat down. Look, I know I can't stop whatever madness you've begun, but please warn me. How big do I need to make the medbay? The older human nodded to his friend, and they silently left. He sat down and drew out a flask and took a sip, passing it to Tech. "'Son, I'm astonished no one thought of it before. We have the deep void of space a couple of meters away, and humans have always played around with the cold. It was always going to happen.' Tech took a drink, letting the human brew warm him. "'Human, nothing you do astonishes me anymore. We built the pods so that you could sail alone in the void.' We imported water so that you could swim at zero-g. We built those holodecks so that you could, uh, well, so that you could have holodecks. All I need to know is what you want from me. He took another drink and sank into himself. The human looked at the sad bastard. It was hard to be a Xena when half the population was human. It was to be a sergeant in an orbital full of officers and civilians. Look, maybe I can help you out. Why don't you come and see what we've done? Tex snorted. And last ten minutes in your at atmos, I'd freeze while I choked to death. I didn't say I wanted to end up in the big bay. The human stood up and offered his hand. We maybe have added a few new controls. You know, like a bit of helpful tinkering. Just because we've found the door open, if, as an example... I set the park to galactic normal for an hour or two. Then you could experience the snow and ice. See what all the fuss is about? It won't melt any anytime soon. He could see the Xeno was torn. They didn't evolve around the cold biomes. This was like an offer to walk on the surface of the sun. The Xeno took another drink. <sighs> Show me. Tech couldn't believe how white everything was. The trees had become furry. The ground slid from under his claws. The human sat him on what looked like a small boat and got up into the front. Okay, this is what we call a sled. It is for our children, so it won't be dangerous. Scary, yes. Just remember the magic word. It took a back flask and sipped it, grinning as it pushed away. Tech was breathless as the human set off the world suddenly flying by. Speed, beauty, risk, it was awesome. He remembered to breathe. The human had given him a word. Wee. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 989 Tales from Outer Space 989 The Peace Table, written by I.R. Good at Writing The war with the Terran Confederation was lost. Once the latest reports from the frontier reached the call systems, support for the war fizzled out almost immediately. Nobles demanded peace, worried about their border holdings. Burgers argued in their guilds, enraged about how the war was disrupting trade. The clergy preached to the masses on every planet, claiming the war went against the will of the Ancient Ones. King Maklevek, the daring, glared had his courtiers in the throne room, fist clenched against the arms of his chair. Lowly servants and powerful vassals openly wept at the nation's defeat, each one trying to outperform the last. Occasionally, someone who was in especially low standing with the king would fall to the floor in grief, squinting at Maklevek to see if he noticed their show. He hated court life or the passion much preferring the battlefield where your allies and enemies are clear. Half of the despondent court would later celebrate how the war undermined his authority. But the military life of his youth was over, now that he had the weight of the kingdom of his shoulders. The double doors at the end of the hall swung open, revealing a page flanked by several royal guards. The boy shouted something that was lost in the crowd of sobbing courtiers. Shut up, all of you! Maclebeck shouted and slammed his fist against the throne. The uproar of crying cut off instantly. The only trace that had ever happened were the echoes that reverberated off the high vaulted ceilings. The king waved a hand towards the page. With a grateful nod, the boy spoke. The Terran delegate is almost here, your majesty, he repeated in a quieter voice. Make your proper arrangements, Maclebeck said. The page and his entourage bowed and backed out of the room, disappearing when the doors closed again. The king slumped back into his throne and lost himself in thought. It was concerning how little he knew about the Terran Confederation. They were a young nation, far from the center of the galaxy. Until now, the Terrans were largely ignored by the bigger players on the galactic stage. He didn't even know what they looked like and doubted anyone in the kingdom knew as well. Most interspecies interactions took place with as little contact as possible. Automated ships were trade and that sort of thing. Even in war, battles were fought in space between navies, not on planet surfaces. Neither side wanted to fight over a planet just to turn it into a smoking ruin. It wasn't because of vastly different biologies that were surprisingly similar amongst the races. The reason for isolation was because the psychologies of each species was so vastly different. Anything more than a basic interaction would result in a war that wouldn't end until one side was driven to extinction. So, when the Terrans insisted on meeting face to face instead of the usual written missive, it made him uneasy. Realizing the entire court was watching him in silence, woke MacLevic from his contemplation. Their faces were stone masks now, but the king could feel the fear in the air. He wasn't the only one thinking about the consequences of this meeting. It was too late to back out now. Not like he was in a position to refuse the meeting. He leaned to his steward, standing beside the throne. Get rid of the non-essentials, he whispered. The steward nodded and pounded his staff against the marble floor three times. Servants, knights, and lesser nobles scurried out, leaving only the most important members from each estate and a small army of heavily armed royal guards lining the walls. The burghers were the first to sit in a long pieced table at the foot of the throne, followed by the clergy in long flowing robes. Finally, the nobles moved to take their own places. Even before everyone had been seated, they began muttering to each other probably discussing the fastest way out of the room if negotiations turned into a bloodbath. Maclevec rubbed his fingers across his brow and sighed. He could only hope that these Terrans didn't know how bad things really were. Compared to most slugfests between superpowers and the Galactic Center, this war was closer to a skirmish. But it was one that was embarrassingly one-sided in the favor of Terrans. Makrovic wanted to commit more forces to the frontier, but didn't want to expose the call systems to attack from neighbors more powerful and malicious than some backwater nations. After spending a few minutes of meaningless speculation and nervous mumbling past, the page opened the door again. Dozens of the most influential people in the kingdom watched him. M- m- "'May I present the, the Terran delegation?' The page didn't bother conceding the terror in his face. It did a half-bow and sprinted away. Members of the estates held their breaths and waited, only staying in their seats from fear over invoking the king's ire. Royal guards gripped the plasma rifles closer to their chests and eyeballed the entrance. Maklovak leaned forward on his throat, eager to see what kind of people defeated his mighty kingdom. Clearly... They must have evolved for war, he reasoned. Long, mysterious shadows danced across the wall in the outer hallway as the Terrans closed in. They turned the corner and came into full view. The king's suspicions were confirmed when he saw the beasts that marched into the throne room. Five reptiles dressed in traditional ceremonial armor stepped forward, having to duck to fit through the entrance. Their jaws alone were as big as Maclevec's head and filled with rows of rows of dagger-like teeth. A few burghers rose out of their chairs to run, when suddenly the Terrans all dropped to one knee and spoke in unison. King Maclevec, the Daring, we are honored to be in your presence, they said in gravelly voices. Maclevec physically reared back in shock. The members of the estate gaped at the Terrans. The royal guards tilted their heads and looked at each other. Unsure what to do. These delegates of the foreign nation had just properly greeted the king according to tradition. Holding the post, the Terrans waited for Maclevic to speak. The king scratched his head, trying to gather his senses. Arise, delegates, from the Terran confederation, and join me in this peace talk. He stared at the five reptiles, and then at the dozens of empty seats at the other end of the table. I was expecting more of you. As if command, more shadows appeared in the hall outside of the throne room. Five bird-like creatures waddled into the room. The tallest amongst them only reached Maclevic's waist. Each of them had two eyes on top of their heads and two below. What is the meaning of this? A noble stood up and said to everyone and no one. Ignoring the comment, the new envoys kneeled and repeated the ancient phrase. For a full minute, they held the pose as Maclevic tried unsuccessfully to piece the situation together. Eventually, he spoke. I don't know who you are, but I'm afraid they were only meeting with the Terran Confederation. He gestured towards the reptiles, taking their seats at the table. The avian newcomers glanced at each other and then at the king. We are the Terran Confederation, the one in the middle spoke. Mclevec scowled at the aliens in the throne room. These so-called Terrans were taking him for a fool. Both species couldn't be Terrans, yet each one claimed to be a part of the delegation. It was more concerning that two completely different species were actually tolerating each other. That didn't happen. Whoever these people were, they were up to something. For a brief moment, he considered seizing these schemers and throwing them into the dungeon. He immediately quashed that idea after thinking back to the pitiful reports from the Frontier. For now, he had no choice but to play this little game with the Terrans. Very well, the king said. Join the table then. A race of crustaceans entered next, more races coming in after them. Maclevic's grip on the arms of the throne grew tighter each time a new species came in and repeated the damned phrase. Then he realized what was happening. Judging by the bewildered and panicked looks of each member of the estates, they hadn't figured it out. Beneath all the niceties and bowing and congeniality, this was a threat, a display of power. The Terran ambassadors weren't armed, but he felt like a cornered animal all the same. The king scanned the far end of the table, going from race to race. Predatory species sat with prey, mammals, reptiles, insectoids and more calmly discussing the details of their treaty like they weren't from completely different worlds. No wonder why his kingdom was so soundly deflated, Maclevit thought. Somehow the real Terence brought these races together, settled their differences, and united them under one banner. It took all of his restraint to not tear the arms of the chair off in rage. Similar revelations hit the nobles, burghers, and clergymen on his side of the table based on their grim expressions. The Terran side of the table was nearly full. The king mused that there was never a point in history where so many races sat in one room together without getting each other. He allowed himself a grim smile. Just when he was about to officially start the negotiations, one more species entered the throne room. A group of two-legged mammals walked in, elegant clothing covered in smooth skins, And you must be the true Terrans. Maklevok watched as the new creatures as they filled the remaining gap at the peace table. With all due respect, King Maklevok, the leader raised its arms and motioned towards the rest of the aliens at the table. We are all true Terrans. It clapped its hands together and grinned. Now, um, shall we begin? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 990 The Nameless Diner, written by the Oz Nerd. The Nameless Diner was new. It was a small thing, a single tiny room with a counter and a long bench, with an old jukebox that sat on the far wall. Its size made sense, given that it was built into the side of a ship, barely powerful enough for space travel. It, just showing up in the market square out of the blue, was surprise enough for Quozal. The biggest surprise was that it was run by a human. The galaxy at large had only begun interacting with the fledgling race within the last galactic decade. Humans had only just met the rest of the galaxy in the grand scheme of things. Treaties between the sole government and the Spiral Union were still being ratified, and the idea of humanity joining the Union were absurd for such early days. To this day, Seeing a human at all was a rarity, let alone interacting with one, and they were often given a wide berth out of sheer unfamiliarity. All Quozel could do was stare as the diner's owner wiped out the bar. They were only half as tall as Quozel, with smooth chestnut skin and wavy raven hair that sat in heavy locks on their shoulders. By contrast, Quozel was a basheth a quadrupedal reptilian with an upper torso shockingly reminiscent of the biped in front of him. He flinched when the human locked eyes with him. They waved at Quozel, who waved back weakly as they slowly inched towards the exit. Quozel stopped when, silently, the human poured a glass of beer and set it on the bar. Without a word, they continued wiping down the counter. After a moment's hesitation, Quozel padded up to the bench and sat down being careful to not sit atop his left forefoot. Given his size, he this took up a sizable portion of the bench. What is this drink? he asked. Consider it a promotion to celebrate me setting up shop here, the human said, not taking their eyes off the counter. Quozel blinked, and then took a sip of the offered beverage. Then the two went quiet. The human went about their business while Quozel occasionally sipped his beer. After a few moments, the human asked, "'What happened to your foot?' Kozel could feel the dull throb beneath the hastily applied bandage. "'Snapped on some glass,' he said with a grimace. The human sucked in the air through their teeth. "'Been there,' they said. "'Dropped a glass in the kitchen and thought I'd stripped it all up. But I didn't,' Kozel grunted. His injury was also the result of his own actions. But he wished that he had just dropped the glass. It would have felt less depressing.' How'd that bottle even get there? Before he realized it, Kozel had emptied his glass. His stomach dropped. It was too early for this. Refill, asked the human. Against his own desires, Kozel said, No thanks, and began standing. A glass of water was put in front of him. On the house was all the human said. Kozel stared at the clear liquid. How long had it been since he'd drunk water? He looked towards the human who was polishing the glasses. "'What's on the menu?' he asked quietly. A large plate of grilled fish was put down in front of him, with a fresh glass of water. "'Thanks,' said Quozel. "'Not a problem,' replied the human. The taste of the fish took Quozel back to a better time, when he was young, and had little to worry about besides his schooling. He would have shed a tear, were his species capable. Instead... His thick tail involuntarily curled into a tight ball. My cooking can't be that good, can it? Joked the human. Quozel swallowed a mouthful of fish. Shut it, he said defensively. You've done your research, haven't you? The human smiled. I gotta know my clientele. More water? Please. Quozel heard a splash of water filling the glass, then... Name still. The human held out Quozel's drink. Grateful, he took it. Quazal, he responded after a moment. Pleasure to make your acquaintance, Till said with a flourish. And mine yours. Till grabbed the glass. They made for a beer tap, then paused briefly, glancing at Quazal. They bought themselves a color instead. Quazal opened his mouth to thank them, but thought better of it. So, uh, what brings you out here? he asked. Till thought, a glass to her lips. I was just making my way along the B-48 Corex hub when I saw a link ring to here, and I thought uh, that quiet would do me good, so why not? So I took it, and here I am. Gosel barked. You passed up one of the most populated hubs in the galaxy. For this place, how much money are you losing? Doesn't matter. I have plenty of savings. Tillstone was entirely unconcerned. Peaceful. Cozal laughed, his tail slapping the bench. No way you're doing this just because you like it. In this pokey thing that could barely break atmosphere. You'd have to be desperate for this to be your vehicle of choice. Why are you really out here doing this? till blinked and set the glass down. Slowly, their expression shifted from content nonchalance to stern recollection. Yeah, actually. Never really liked my home much. It was one of the skeevier places on a moon colony. Gangs found it a good place to set up shop. And that just killed it for everyone. Soon enough, everybody that wasn't a gangster or in their pocket packed up and shipped out. I was the last one. I bought the shunker for pennies, fixed her up as best I could, and got out of Dodge as soon as I could get her running. Squatted in a surface garage for about a year while I made her presentable. Then I worked those streets for a few years while I saved up. I was doing pretty well too, but all the time I couldn't get the colony out of my mind. It was always above my head, like it was watching me. So when I decided that I'd saved up enough, I just left. And I'd been hopping planets since. They punctuated their exposition with a hearty slamming of the glass onto the bar. And like it never happened, their expression was once more of contentment. Then... A knowing, inquisitive smirk fell on their lips. Now then, seeing as I've shown you mine, how about you show me yours? It took a second for Quozel to realize what they meant, and after a moment's hesitation, he laid his forefoot on the bar. A dirty, bloodstained bandage was wrapped crudely around his foot, weaving in between his toes. I stepped on a half-empty bottle when I got out of bed, he said solemnly. It hurt to say, at this point... I can't sleep without a good few drinks in me. Come morning, I always have a hangover and no memory of falling asleep. It hurt to say. But it was a good hurt, a necessary hurt. He knew that, deep down. Damn, Toe replied quietly. Do you work? Quozel chuckled painfully. You think I can get work more? He sighed. Ah, nobody will hire me, a drunk. Word's gotten round. I'm just lucky for my pension. i my parents' old house. Would you like to? Quozel blinked as the question unraveled inside of his mind. What? Till looked back into the tiny kitchen behind the bar. I've been thinking of expanding this place a bit. More seats, bigger kitchen, the whole shebang. Problem is, to make it work, I need more staff. Till looked back at Quozel. So, how about it? Quozel sagged. He'd been stared at in the street, mocked by former co-workers and customers alike, seen his life spiral down the neck of a bottle. It took him and held him down, forcing him to live in a perpetual state of self-destruction. he had almost forgotten what kindness felt like, what it was like to feel like a person rather than walking series of bad decisions. One question nagged him, though. Why? he asked, half expecting to hear that this was all a jape so that he could return to his bitter squalor. Till smiled. Same reason I'm out here. Why not? Quozel's tail curled into a tight ball. Word had gotten round that a certain staff member was a bit of a temperamental sight, and was occasionally seen sipping light beer on the counter while the owner wiped it down. But the eatery's recent patrons rebuffed the rumours. By all accounts, from the people of the Korrex hub, the Beseth on staff was an amiable sort and got on well with both customers and the owner. Still, something seemed a bit odd about him. Quozel felt terrible. He had traded one kind of hull for another. Every fiber of his being was telling him that to stick his mouth beneath the tap and drink until he couldn't stand up straight, then drink some more. The diner's many species patrons drinking casually didn't help matters. But he stayed the course and went dry until closing time. He collapsed into a wide chair in the ship's lounge behind the bar, melting into the leather. He heard a clink of a glass on the nearby table and accepted the water gratefully. Well done, said Till, heading out to the some last-minute cleaning. Every sip of water cleared Quozel's head a little bit more, and Till's words of encouragement aided more than Quozel believed they'd knew. The nameless diner was new. It was a small thing, a single room of a counter and a bench, a pair of tables, and an old jukebox that sat in the corner. The ship that it was attached to was a cozy little box about the size of a cottage. It just showing up in the middle of Korrig's Hub, and doing so well, was surprise enough for Quozel. The bigger surprise was that he was sober enough to remember it in the morning. End of Story Tales from Outer Space 991 Story number one. Department of Engineering Redundancy Department in Engineering. Written by Glitchkey. I stared at the screen, checking and double-checking the blueprint. It couldn't be right. There was just no way being that wasteful was reasonable. Hey, um, Jocelyn, uh, can you double-check something for me? Jocelyn leaned back from the cubbyhole next to me. Then came over and looked at my screen. What's up? I pointed at the blueprints I was examining. I feel like this is a trick question or something. I'm working on efficiency designs and all that, and he gives me this, uh, this garbage heap as a question. Taking a moment to peer at the blueprint, Jocelyn shook her head. Not sure what you mean. There are a couple of places where I see that you might be able to improve efficiency, but nothing is really wrong overall. "'Nothing!' I sputtered. "'I could have removed half the systems from the ship, and it would work just fine!' Turning to stare at me for a moment, Jocelyn just shook his head and sat back down in his cubbyhole. "'You could, if you wanted to get flunked and dropped from the engineering program.' "'Flunked! How?' I just shook my head and stared at the bit of the blueprints. "'Okay, okay!' I get that species that designed this ship is big on redundancies and redundancies for redundancies. But this is ridiculous! They have entirely pointless backup systems. Joshlin just continued typing away in his cubbyhole. You slept through half of the class again, didn't you? (coughs) Nyon. Yeah. So, the typing stopped. There are reasons you're required to take these cultural classes as an engineer. This is one of those. Sure it is. This still feels like a trick question. There's no way anyone can make use of manual control systems for projectile weapons. It's pointless. No, it's not pointless. You know about specialized evolution. You've already had to engineer your way around a living space for a tetrapodal species the size of a classroom. Shrugging, I rotated to the ship view to check the weapon systems again. Doesn't matter. Everyone requires targeting systems to hit something with a projectile. Typing started up again in the cubbyhole next to me. Not humans. Trust me, they do it very well. Specialized neural pathways or something. There is even projectiles in a lot of their recreational activities. Sure, sure. And I bet that they only sleep once a month, too. If there was a bit of an edge in my voice, I didn't care. A notification went off in the corner of my screen before Jocelyn spoke again. Do yourself a favor. I just sent you some Hollywood links for human sports. Go watch those before you manage to flunk yourself. End of story. Story number two. Abomination, written by Rosie013. The small cloaked figure flitted from shadow to shadow, pursuing its goal with a single-minded determination and then sat down in the bar's last remaining empty booth, glad to have crossed the crowded room without attracting attention. They were there to wet their lips in the lonely station between worlds, not cause a public disturbance. Despite their cowled and secretive nature, their short stature and narrow profile was a dead giveaway to this species' identification. If anyone within a million light years was educated enough to know, hardly enough, It seemed that the waitress who bounced on over to collect his order knew what he was, or was perhaps sensitive enough to this rough place to know the dangers well in advance. Her jovial attitude died as she questioned if the shadowy figure would like to place an order. The rasping, quiet voice that requested rocket fuel solvent and warm meat made her shiver involuntarily, as much due to the sounds itself as the request. He deposited several small denominations of coins in front of himself, rather than hand them to the server with an outthrust limb that could have been interpreted as a threatening movement. She noted the order and gathered the coins with her apron, being careful not to touch them directly. Chiron had to be reread the order twice before he comprehended what manner of being was occupying his bar. The order wasn't a problem objectively. He still had two bottles of fuel in the back corner of the cellar, but it had been a long while since anyone had ordered any of it. One manner of cosmic joke was it to create foul creatures that consumed the stuff. No matter, he was experienced enough in this business to overlook almost any oddity, so long as they were a paying customer and didn't cause trouble. The other half of the order was a little easier. Meat was regularly served here, but warmed. Disgusting. Thankfully, it hadn't asked for it to be bloody as well. He wouldn't have been able to fulfill that request. He was returning from below with one of the dusty bottles when he heard something of the station's more uh, notorious patrons enter his establishment. They weren't quiet about it. They gave others the chance to flee their approach. Was it time to play his protection fee again? So soon after the last time. Looked around the now cleared out bar with a slight hint of satisfaction. Good times might be few and far between for his gang at the moment, but some free drinks would keep his crew loyal for a little while more, anyway. As the fat old owner made himself known and started pouring for his oven paying customers, it grew notice one of the local fools was still loitering in one of the booths. Idiot. Didn't it know that drinking session was a private affair? It would have to be taught a lesson about respecting its betters. Some of the others, paying attention to the leader's gaze, moved to back him up. As he got closer to the booth, Ikra realized it was a species he didn't recognize. Perhaps fortune was smiling on him today after all. An exotic specimen would sell well to a slave trader. Best of all, the little cloth wrapped on avian didn't seem to realize the danger it was in Surely it would have fled with the rest of the patrons if it had knew. As his shadow fell over the stranger, it looked up at him from its seated position with two glossy orbs of surprising intensity. Ikra nearly had to reach for the table to prevent himself from stumbling in shock. A pool of blue, the exact color of blood, tipped with perfect circle of the purest abyssal black, surrounded on each side by an expanse of pale corpse flesh white. Surprised and angry about receiving what was clearly a threat display of some sort, Ifgrip forgot the demands and went straight for the energy weapon at his pocket. A quick flick of the stun mode and he shot the little alien right in its stupid hooded face. Nothing happened. Nothing happened! The little alien opened her orifice obscenely wide and to display an impressive array of jagged stone growths emerging from its flesh with thin strings of clear, high-viscosity substance dripping from them. With mounting horror, Icarus realized what he was experiencing now was a threat display, and it was working rather well. Trying to not panic in front of the rest of the gang, he flipped the gun back to lethal and shot it again. The abomination didn't react, didn't even flinch. A slight curling of the orifice indicated that it seemed to be enjoying the scourging heat of the thermal pistol. Without warning, a cluster of short tentacles shot out and grasped the weapon, effortlessly wrenching it from the crypt's grip. He didn't need to be told twice. He turned and ran, his equally terrified crew hot on his heels. Chiron watched the last of the local scum flee from his bar in pure awe. He had never seen them run before, not even when that self-proclaimed bounty hunter had faced him down a few dozen cycles ago. He was just wondering how much he should offer the alien to stay as in protection when he met its intense gaze from across the room. On second thoughts, maybe not. He came over to the bar and deposited the weapon onto the bar. Chiron could see that the creature's very touch left strange oily secretions where it had handled the gun. He would have to have that entire booth removed and incinerated after it left. As if reading his thoughts, the little shrouded patron reached for the dusty bottle of fuel that it had already bought and paid for, tucked it into the folds of its clothing and walked out of the bar. It was only then that Chiron realized that he hadn't heard it say anything during the confrontation, or make any noise at all for that matter. Fighting back an unpleasant feeling that he couldn't properly place he started preparing for the first real cleaning the bar had seen in a long time. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 992 Story number one, Mediocre, written by I.R. Good at Writing. When the demons opened a gateway to our world, each race fought back in their own way. The obsidian portals first appeared in the elven homelands, spreading chaos and ruin across the countrysides. Elven mages, whose arcane talent was unparalleled, cast spells that shook the earth. Mountains crashed upon the demonic hordes. Chasms that at no bottom swallowed entire armies. And waves that touched the clouds washed over the land. Still, it was no use. As the elven cities burned, the Emperor of the Elves was approached by man. Mighty elves, man said, teach us your magical power, so we might aid you in these dark times. The Emperor, who normally regarded man as a short-lived and simple people, accepted the request out of desperation. Man's brightest minds were taught how to warp existence to their will, but the elves were unimpressed. A single elven mage could wield more power than a hundred human wizards. The lands of the Earls were overrun by demons, and those that didn't run or hide behind tall walls were killed. Man only gained a mediocre understanding of magic. Next, the portals opened in the scorching badlands of orcs and goblins. For the first time in known history, the tribes cast aside their hatred of each other and banded together. A green tide washed over the demons, hills of monstrous otherworldly bodies formed after each battle. Hawks competed to see how many dozens of demons they could slay, while their goblin leaders commanded the hordes to strike in coordinated offensive across the battlelands. The warlord of the entire army, a cunning and ingenious goblin, was approached by man. Tales of your battlefield knowledge have reached every corner of the world, man said. We wish to learn your tactical wisdom. In exchange, our wizards will aid you in the battlefield. The goblin warlord regarded man with his beady eyes. They lacked the strength of any orc and the wit of a goblin, but any help was welcome. The warlord accepted. Together, man, orc, and goblin marched on the demons. Orcs cleaved through demon after demon, while human wizards called lightning from the sky and hurled fireballs into enemy ranks. Goblin commanders explained how to break the flanks of enemy army, how to encircle and rout them. When man tried to mimic their tactics, the goblin warlord was not impressed. Ambushes were always executed ahead too soon or too late, and encirclements were always smaller than he would have liked. After years of constant warfare, the orcs and goblins were worn down. Every day, the demons pushed further into the Badlands until the orcs and goblins were almost completely driven from their ancestral home. All but the most stout holdouts were lost. Man's grasp of military tactics was mediocre. It was the dwarves in the mountain holds that were attacked next. The demons sniffed out their secret entrances and poured into the vast underground cities. The dwarves, having thousands of years to perfect their craft, fought back with black powder and master engineering. Cannons, rifles, and explosives annihilated any demon attempting to breach their sacred mountains. The king of the dwarves was approached by man. We have fought many battles against the demons, the wizards, warriors, and tacticians said. Allow us to fight what's more. The king stroked his white beard. He couldn't deny their experience but the weapons were crude, worse than the lowest quality dwarf craftsmanship, and the urging of his advisors, he agreed to the offer. In the mountains around the land, man worked with dwarf against the demons. Wizards took the orders of commanders and channeled them into the ears of each soldier, allowing for instant communication across the battlefield. Human commanders positioned men and dwarves at narrow choke points, giving a dozen soldiers the strength of a thousand. However, the dwarves were too few in number, and their holds too vast. One by one, the demons took the mountains, forcing the men and dwarves to retreat into deep underground passages. In the last effort to stop the demons, the king of the dwarves told man the secrets of his people's craftsmanship. It was no use. Man could not come close to dwarven skill. Their black powder was imperfect. Their steel was inferior in strength. The last major dwarf hold fell to the demons, and man's knowledge of engineering was mediocre. The last bastion in the known world was the realm of man. Elves, goblins, orcs, dwarves, and humans prepared for the last battle. Wizards practiced their arcane arts with a handful of elven mages still alive. Human commanders. Conducted exercises against the goblin warlords that made out of the Badlands, orcs attacking and smock demons. The dwarves helped man set up assembly lines in the cities, mass producing guns, armor, cannons, and ammo. Trying to help man was futile. The other races knew, but it was better than doing nothing. Then the obsidian portals opened, the demons rushed out to crush the last hope of resistance. They left one nightmare world and stepped into another. Magic, tactics, and technology combined to make man a deadlier force than any of the other races. Man couldn't rifle their weapons like the dwarves, so they used wizards to propel musket balls to unimaginable speeds and accuracy. Man couldn't cast spells as powerful as the elves, so the commanders told the wizards where and when their magic would turn the tide of the battle. Man couldn't command an army like a goblin, so they made up for it with overwhelming firepower. The commander would hide his forces in a forest, then bait a demon army to enter it. The commander's wizards would use all of their powers to mask the army sent from the demons. Then, when the two armies were almost on top of each other, man would unleash a storm of steel and fire against the demons. All across the land, demonic hordes were losing ground, Retreating closer, and closer to the obsidian portals. Thousands of humans died in the fighting, but even more demons fell with each battle. Man, who excelled at nothing, was winning the war. Man reached the towering black monoliths, the root of all the world's pain and suffering. A flood of demons rushing through the portals. One last attempt to stop man and turn the tide back in their favor. It was no use. Man fought until there was no one left to fight. The battlefields lay silent. Besides, the endless buzzing of flies where the fighting was the thickest. The world rejoiced. Celebrations went out for weeks in the largest cities and the smallest hamlets. Man was hailed as a hero. However, man could not rest. The obsidian monolith still stood silent, waiting. As elf, goblin, orc, and dwarf went back to their homes to rebuild, the portal still loomed over the realm of man. In the back of his mind, man knew that there would be no peace with the unknown on the other side of the Black Abyss. So man rallied its wizards, tacticians, engineers, and soldiers, and took the fight to the demons. End of story. Story number two, They Seem So Weak, written by Lords of June. Council members of the Pan-Galactic Federation, all have seen the enemy and they are numerous, joyful in their revenges, and unwilling to listen further. All have felt the stinging rebukes of every foray into their growing domain and come back weaker for it. There's not yet been a failure to learn, there has been a failure to adapt Take this deemed council lead of the Danai Heartworlds, for the seventh soda cycle that a row. They attempted to enter the sovereign space occupied by the humans and established there, and I use this word with hesitation, processing stations, which transition prisoners into both workforce members as well as food. When the humans sent all of those rather impressive ballistic missiles into their naval and marine barracks with force enough to see them detonate in their respective atmospheres, this should have clued the deny into reverse their plotted course and cease the plans for year 8. That the deny are here to petition for PGF relief is a telling indicator that they did not adapt. Instead, they learned about the decency and civilized treatment of others and demonstrated none of the lessons. Furthermore, there is an issue of the Absiu, who first encountered the humans as they patrolled the shared borders of their then stagnant hard-walled lines, and became enlightened that the probes would be returned in component form to any and all of those attempting to intrude on human domain space. When the humans grew tired of disassembling those probes, and chose to begin firing operations of kinetic kill weapons, and struck reconnaissance spaces at a periphery, most of whom had never been detected by even the fellows of the PGF Council. They were being taught a lesson in privacy and respect, that further barrages were apparently needed as the human sovereign space was disrespected again and again. Necessitating the emergency evacuation of two occupied platforms in high orbit around a gastrite is, once again... Demonstration enough that the tactics did not evolve. Only the worny noises made by the aggrieved parties. As for my own people and the long-standing grudge against the humans, for the issues arising out of the attempted colonization of their homeworld and resulting counter-assault which took out every satellite and station over our homeworld, I can say this. We have learned from the humans. We have accepted a new world as it is not what was. And we are joining their newly minted organization immediately. You, with your hidebound legislative paralysis, your interminable complaints, and petty, pointless secrets are not invited. They are calling this organization, first and foremost, a school. And we will be proud pupils, for we have, at long last, found worthy teachers." As a farewell gesture, we are locking the station in temporary quarantine and each of you possesses a section of the release code, which is the second most important part of this discussion. The most important part is this. In ten minutes after this video ends, a combination of ballistic kill weapons, nuclear-tipped missiles, and reconstructed satellite probes will strike this station and likely see it fall as a burning star to the convocation world beneath it witnessed by the remaining members of the Pan-Galactic Federation. May you choose to adapt and share rather than keep secrets. Here endeth the lesson. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 993 Humans are weird. Just too dang hot. Greetings, friend. Roll so slowly. Twistunder called out as he caught sight of a slightly larger undulate roting down the main hallway. Do you have some observation time available at the moment? Roll slowly, idly rotated his body so that one of his gripping appendages was uppermost and grabbed onto the jaw jam of the exit. This efficiently stopped his movement and allowed Twistunder to catch up to him more easily against the dripped current. I have no pressing assignments at the moment, Roll slowly observed. What did you wish to observe? Twistanda called after him and cheerfully tapped Roll slowly's exposed appendages in a friendly greeting. Roll slowly returned the gesture and they drifted down the corridor. You expressed curiosity in how variable human reactions to touch greetings were, Twistanda explained. Also, you were curious about how the acceptability of touch-greetings varied with temperature and atmospheric pressure. Actually, Roll slowly interjected, I believe I expressed incredulity. That is a bit of a difference there. Twistunder hummed in amusement. Well, I believe I can introduce you to a situation where the phenomenon will be exceptionally obvious. Twistunder said, although it will require two distinctly different observational times. Do you have sapient species behavioral observation permissions? Rolls slowly asked. You won't need them, Twistunder said with a dismissive wave of an appendage. Everything we'll be doing falls under the casual social interaction exemption. However, on that note, can you think of anything personally interesting you might want to ask the humans to collect for you on today's excursion? Rolls slowly mulled over this as they began to swim towards the main airlock. Above them, the steady double beat of the human tread filled the waterways with a soothing rhythm. They are going into the dense land reefs, are they not? Rolls slowly asked. The forests, yes, Twisunda confirmed. Then there is nothing that I could wish from there, Rolls Away said. All of my research has been into the proper reef systems of this planet. "'In that case, you must simply exchange the friendliest greetings "'that you consider appropriate with the human that you are closest to,' "'Twist said. "'Ask for an upies if your current level of socialization allows for it.' "'That won't be a problem,' Rolls away assured him. "'Human friend Susan is on the team going out today. "'She has actually faced disciplinary hearings "'on no less than three separate occasions for giving unsolicited uppies. "'We are great friends.' Disciplinary hearings for unsolicited uppies, Twistunder asked in a note of confusion. Those were of course for sapiens other than undulates, I suppose. Oh no, Rolls Away replied. Only the first two involved an undulate who was holding either a high concentrate beaker of acid or a biohazard of some sort, and it spilled. The third was classified by the university for diplomatic reasons, but given how pale human friend Susan gets, whenever it is mentioned... I suppose the ungulate must have been carrying something quite valuable and which cost her university quite a bit to replace. That is understandable, Twistanders said in a cautious tone. Still, if one is living with humans, one must learn either to dodge or to hold on tight. They had come to the main airlock and the joyful cacophony of humans gathered to prepare for a mission was fitting both the chamber above them and the flowway they were in. They slipped through the pressure barrier and shuffled up onto the main deck. Immediately, the sound profile thinned as their auditory cells adjusted to the thin atmosphere. Twistunder nudged the rolls away and indicated the readout on the wall. Note that the room is kept at a lower end of human preferred temperature and humidity, Twistunder pointed out. These are the conditions best for physical-social interaction. The most relevant issues being the humans are conserving their thermal reserves at this point, and instinctively welcome the presence of social biomass insulation. Added to this, their secretion glands are at the lowest possible setting, leaving their outer membrane moisture content very close to the same level as the chita, only slightly warmer on average. I observe that everything you say is accurate, or logical deduction, or comparison. Rolls away agreed. At this point, human friend Susan stopped packing supplies into her personal mass transporter and came over to them. Her exposed face and arms flushed with the dancing light of pleasure. Rolls away lifted his gripping appendages in an exaggerated gesture one had to use on humans for uppies, and human friend Susan obliged by scooping him up and happily letting him curl around her shoulders. Her long braid slapped against her shoulders in an almost angry gesture that most undulates learned to ignore fairly quickly. The concept that humans had no real control over the only real appendages that they were capable of growing was a difficult concept, but one that, once mastered, prevented much misunderstanding. You guys came to see us off? she asked Twistunder. Indeed, Twistunder said. That, and to offer a warning. What kind of warning, twit? Human friend Mac asked, strolling over to greet the undulates. The temperature, humidity, will continue to rise until well past the solar zenith, Twistunder said. Do remember to sustain your internal hydration. The male human gave a loud laugh, and his exposed skin fled with pleasure at the unawareness of the community. The female human generated a happy coo and nuzzled her chemo receptor. The only dedicated sensory organ the humans had that was almost an appendage. Into rolls away before slooping her shoulders to indicate that he had to get down. The humans gathered up their packs and swung out into the dense fauna outside of the dome, laughing and chatting amongst themselves. We were quite sure there was no predators that would want to eat them, Rosaway asked in a soft tone, as their tall bodies seemed to shrink, to become frail beneath the massive trunks of the forest. They insist that none of the fauna or predatory flora is a threat, Twister said cautiously reaching out to give Rolls-Away a nudge. The station has had no human deaths. Predatory flora, Rolls-Away said, and shiver ran up his mess. This planet has algae that eat your proteins. And we humans that can perform an instant dissection if we get caught in one, Twistunder under said cheerfully. That's why they carry those long blades. What are they called? Machetes, Rolls-Away said, feeling a bit better. I took training in those too, you know. I'm now rated to carry even the longest one safely. That's a good skill to have, Twist Under agreed. Now we need to watch the readout for their return. To observe their reaction under conditions of humidity and raised internal temperature, we want to catch them just as they come in. I was of the understanding that when they follow proper hydration protocol, there is no raising cold temperature at all. Rolls away, observed. Oh, yes. Twistunder said with a dismissive wave out of his gripping appendage. But they never follow proper hydration protocol. Meet me here as soon as you can after the perimeter defense alert to their return. Rolls away, gave a shimmy of confirmation and went to find out if the biochem department had made any advancements on their predatory plant repellent mist. The day cycle passed and, as Twistunder had predicted, the humans returned near the heat zenith with the solar zenith several hours behind them. They were moving far more slowly now, trudging, their movement was called. They trudged into the decontamination area and released their packs with groans and hisses. They let the lights play over them and they trudged into the inner airlock. Their skin was flushed with angry red lights of dehydration and their off-gassed chemical signals spoke of woefully low levels of several minerals. Human friend Susan dropped down on a nearby bench and began to tug off the armoured coverings that she wore on her feet. As the two undulates planned, Rolls away went up to human friend Susan and held up his appendages in a request for appies. For several moments, the human didn't seem to notice as she wrestled with her foot armour. When she did see him, she just groaned and shook her head, her braids falling limply on her shoulders. Not now, Rolls, she said, way too hot. May I help remove your foot, Armour? Rolls away asked, slightly excited to get such a quick confirmation of the theory. Slightly disturbed by the signals her outer membrane was giving off. Too hot for you to be near my feet? Human friend Susan muttered. Which wasn't exactly logical, but the whole point of today's exercise was that he didn't really understand human thermodynamics. Twist Under was chatting with the crew lead, Something about plant. Its name was in a debate at the university. Pending a more thorough description, Rollsaway mused that while the humans were moving so slowly, was a good time to pin them down for questions. Do your braids increase your retained thermal energy, human friend Susan? Rollsaway asked. She turned her head to him and blinked slowly as she processed the information. She slowly nodded and her lips warmed the shape of the words but she didn't bother expending the breath to activate her sound-generating organ. She reached up with one hand and gathered both braids in one hand, pulling them up, causing her chin to dip down. Her other hand gripped the machete and freed it from its safety restraints. Then, in one smooth motion, she brought the blade, stained with fluids from innumerable plants, up and began to soar away at the braided appendage. Despite the blade clearly not being rated for something as tough as the appendage, The last few strands severed several seconds before Rolls Away began to shriek in horror. Rolls Away did not consider his mental processes to be particularly slow. He had often wondered how he would react in an emergency. He had never specifically thought about friends self-mutilating, but it was a rather crushing blow to discover that he couldn't react in time to prevent her. His thoughts were interrupted when human friend Max scooped him up in his arms and began petting him. Soothingly. Human friend Mac was fairly conversant in the ungulate language, but his fingers were babbling something about dead tissue and nerve endings, and meanwhile, human friend Susan was listlessly holding her severed appendages. Rolls away. Please collect yourself. Tristanda's to touch suddenly interjected itself. Human friend Mac had stopped talking as his two primary appendages seemed fully occupied with holding the weight of two fully grown undulates. She needs medical aid, Rolls Away insisted. I assure you she does not, Twist insisted. Look at her colors. Rolls Away took in the heat, flushed and dehydrated patterns playing across human friend Susan's face. She was far from needing medical attention, but there were no signs of pain or excess fluid loss. Now that he was thinking properly, he did recall that the material of the braids was technically dead tissue. And that other than mass, the human lost nothing by removing it. Still, the sight of those limp appendages in her hands sent shivers down Rolls Away's mass. Are you okay? Human friend Mac pressed into his mass. Yes, uh, I will be. Rolls Away pressed back. Please uh, set me down. Come on, Tristander said, tugging him towards the floorways. I know that looked traumatizing. I didn't think she would use such an inappropriate tool. You think the tool was the problem? Rolls away demanded. Behind them, they heard Human Friend Mac demand of Human Friend Susan, "What were you thinking?" I "Was too hot," Human Friend Susan replied with a shrug. "Less air means less hot." End of story. Tales from Outer Space Nine Hundred Ninety Four. Growing old where the skilled die young. Written by Lords of Dupe, the instructor Floor, stood with his jaw angled up and eyes scanning the classroom and practice space aboard the vessel adjacent premium. The AP was a vessel purpose-built for cultural exchange, learning, and above all else, the brokering of the rarest of elements throughout the Dominion. Peace. To that end, it had instructors from the top of the tiers for their respective sciences, and one class was in demand and a required course, demanding a full focus of even the most jaded of veterans, conflict, resolution, and crisis management. Despite a florid name, it seemed centered on brutalizing an opponent in a physical environment, recovering enough from wounds accrued during instruction, and repeating the process as often as the student could actively survive. The rate of pass to fail stood at a single highest imbalanced ratio in the entirety of the floating academy, a benchmark which seemed a source of either pride or shame for the instructors. The Washouts. prior to their departure, described the harrowing moments to their peers as gruelling yet terrifying lessons, sometimes with horror stories enough attached to dissuade future enrollees from continuing their education aboard the adjacent premium. Despite no student being required to pass his course, few students would drop it before their stamina and mental endurance broke them. It was a point of honor to continue as long as was feasible and survivable. As he looked at the remaining thirty-one students still in their tired desks, Harnock Floor began his daily lecture, a routine which was punctuated by the cruelties which inevitably ensued. Wrong answers seemed to be the minimum, with some answers being wronger than others. "'Peace is painful,' he said, as always. "'Peace is expensive!' Peace is the buffer between walls, and peace is achievable. Tell me how to make that happen. As he crossed his arms, he glared from face to face, missing no one, skewering none more than their neighbor. The ritualized demand would be an empty space, filled soon enough with a mistake, and the real lesson would begin. Always a surprise, never a dull moment being fair. One student, a growl from the wintry Hullhole, a death-wilder, who'd rarely spoken, raised her uppermost limb and smoothed the fur from her eyes, and I locked the instructor. We listen before we speak, and the air in the classroom seemed to shift. What would usually happen singularly failed to do so. The monstrous instructor, AIDS, did not enter the room to pair off with the students and begin thoroughly beating them senseless. Instead... The instructor spoke further. A rarity. And from that, student Aspergelna... The student's own name stood up, now fully addressed in specific and continued, her voice high, strident. Though not eager nor fearful, Death Deathwilders rarely carried fear in their voices. A unifying trait, really. They had to face far worse threats simply surviving their childhoods than the AP could produce. Some... Uh, they seemed to relax, even during the lessons, regardless of the brutality involved. We honor those who have fallen and become the better student. We are never an enemy on purpose. This seemed to be the correct reply, until the instructor motioned for the broadside portal, from which came not a horde of grunting nightmares, but a single, unarmed human, aged somewhere in the range of seven decades, looking to be careworn more than weathered by the storms of warfare. So many humans in that class served as instructor aides as to familiarize every student with their own personalized beatings. The mere sight of the old man settled concerns immediately. Class, that might be the most the most accurate and most heartfelt answer that you've literally bared witness to. So I suggest that you memorize it, as it would be considered crucial. The newcomer, soon to be standing shoulder to shoulder with the much taller instructor, seemed to gaze at nothing and no one, simply sharpening from point to point. A slow progression of foot following foot, padded by thick, warm socks. The cool, hard tiling of the vessel's floor was unforgiving to warm-blooded species, so the thermal garments with the feet were far from uncommon. This is Mr. Yee! who has a small reward for anyone who can perform what I call a major miracle. And with that cue, the so-named Mr. Yi opened up his right hand and produced a simple basic coin, one from any of almost 300 settled worlds. The value, give or take, of a can of pressurized liquid stimulant, or a cooling beverage for a warm climate. Insignificant pocket change and it might as well have been a system lord's ransom as every eye bent to see it. Take the coin from his custody and you'll exit this room a full graduate. I'll even offer commendations to your respective career guides in your name. Reportedly, he'd done some in the last six cases since his installation aboard the AP, and none could say who nor why. That moment seemed to be it. And that was a challenge enough for the first student and the uppermost tier to rise. Step to the floor and approached Mr. Yi. I need that coin. The student, a growl, looked like an earth-born grizzly bear by the way of a scorpion, possessed chitinous armor, which bore cracks and folds never intended. Wounds accrued during the painful reckoning dressed as daily lessons. He'd been a sociologist by trade before joining the fleet's academy and awarded a slot in the class. And seemed right enough. Then, take it. The old man didn't seem to speak, yet the words were soft. Carry on the non-existent breeze, and the student moved to close the distance. A moment later, the student was on the floor, the coin still visible, and the old man had done something brief, painful and exerted pressure enough to move two hundred kilo entity, almost three meters, towards the door. Next. And so began another beating. Student after student filed away from the tiered seating, and all experienced a brief, harsh lesson. The coin was Mr. Yee's property, and they could not even touch him, let alone take the coin. No pleading or inquiry was considered valid, no threat even acknowledged, and no attack succeeded. Even the paltry defenses of the most advanced students fell apart when the old man simply avoided all threats and answered with overwhelming superiority. If what they knew before was a mere cruelty, what they experienced now was a savagery, and by someone who offered no words of condemnation nor contempt, rather a never-ending look of vague disappointment. Every student who fell was escorted away by the still-standing students, until the last sparrow remained, and it was Horneck Floor who escorted him away. No words of warning nor solace provided. Such was his class. Until, at long last, the student Aspergilna was all who remained present and remained standing, still waiting patiently, and she walked from the tier that she'd been sitting in and approached the human, and... Performed a miracle. She sat on the floor in front of him, legs folded primly, and looked into his eyes, never breaking contact. I wish to learn. And the coin fell to the floor, danced briefly, and like every student save her, fell into silent repose. Tomorrow then. And Mr. Yi gave a grave, serious nod to Horneck Floor, who then bowed deeply in a motion viewed as fearing defeat or perhaps acknowledging a more severe threat. To which Mr. Yi replied with a bow just as deep. The old human turned on a heel, departing from the training room, somehow looking impressed. With a motion, Hornick Floor instructed Aspergillna to rise, which she said, How did you know to do that? To this she replied, He was teaching us, I chose to learn, and you never taught us anything about fighting. I was always learning from you, never the ones who beat us down, over and over again. To this, Hornec Floor smiled. He never smiled in open dialogue with the student to their knowledge. Not even a smirk nor a sneer. Always placid, always calm and detached. What have you learned from me? That conflict is painful and made worse when you fight learning from it. And that an old man is who taught you how to fight. She seemed satisfied enough with her answer to perform what her species did in lieu of a smile, then gave a courteous bow in acknowledgement of a teacher. As she moved to the door, her neck floor dressed her anew. It wasn't a fight, Aspergilna, it was a learn. And to this, she paused in her stride, and finally understood the lesson. To this day, she is the instructor of conflict resolution and crisis management, and every year... She is visited the day before her single graduate is released, and always by the same man, Harnik Floor, who honors his fallen, much-loved teacher, with nothing more than a coin and a request. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 995 Neighborly, written by Dan and Angel Ka'ath knelt beside the dead body. Unlike most of the dead who were piled up just outside the camp, waiting to be thrown into a mass grave, this one had died of suicide. Garth and his helpers had carefully looked over the bodies, picking the healthiest ones out of the diseased and rotting corpses, before loading them onto anything with wheels and taking them to the makeshift kitchen. It had been back-breaking work, but it needed to be done. He took a moment to catch his breath. His lungs ached from breathing in the ash and dust, and his eyes watered constantly. The cooking fires didn't help his breathing, but at least it was warm. The light barely cut through the unnatural darkness. It was noon, yet the ash the sky looked like the deepest night. As the wind blew more ash into his face, Kaath wished that he had a building to work in but no buildings had survived the impact. They'd all been destroyed by the earthquake or the firestorms. Taking the butcher knife, he cut into the body. It had been hard to do on that first day. Each cut had made him want to vomit and tears had filled his eyes. Now, the bodies were just a source of food, another way to stay alive. He heard his helper, Vothra, curse as she cut herself opening a can of vegetables one of the last that they had. Make sure to bleed into the pot, Kaath said. We can use the protein. It's my blood. If anyone gets it, it's me, she replied, placing a digit in her mouth. Before he could reply, there were screams from the refugee camp. He couldn't make much out over the crowd, but it sounded like demons. Getting to his feet, he looked to the sky and saw something impossible. Hundreds of lights were coming down through the ash cloud. He had seen flying machines before. His people had made massive ones to transport goods over land at sea. But they were huge and slow. These were about as large as a transport bus and flew through the sky impossibly fast. They came to within a few hundred feet above the camp and then shouted impossibly loudly, ''Help is here! Stay! Help is here!'' They repeated the message. The accent and pronunciation was strange, like they didn't know the language very well. But it was still understandable. Some people still ran. Most stayed where they were, whether out of shock, hope, or simply being too weak and injured to move. The strange things flew to a clear spot at the edge of the camp and landed gently on the ashen ground. Ka'ath went towards them, still carrying his butcher's knife. Vithra followed close behind, unthinkingly holding a can of vegetables. They weren't alone. Dozens of others were heading to the things as well, most holding some kind of makeshift weapon. The things were oddly shaped, a little like a bird in flight, but without a tail. They were smooth and made out of black material. There were no windows, and Garth wondered how those inside could see. The one closest to them shifted rippling like water to form an opening, allowing something on dreads to drive out. It was rectangular in shape, bright white with a red cross on it. Two appendages that looked a little like arms and hands were built into its back. It didn't look like anything the Garth had ever heard of. He noticed that more of the box things had appeared. They were all doing strange things, digging into the dirt, raising odd bits of rubbish and debris inside themselves, and putting devices up. At least, a few of them seemed to be setting up tents. These were also bright white with the same red cross on them. Help is here, the nearest box said. It placed a small tripod down and pointed at someone in the crowd. You here, you help I, I help you. The woman slowly and cautiously walked towards the tripod. You speak here, the box said, pointing at the tripod. Speak. What what do you want me to say, she asked. Speak, say, the box repeated. The woman looked terrified, but began speaking. Please, help us, we we need food, water, medicine, anything you can spare. Food, food is eat, yes, the box asked. Yes, we eat food. The box motioned at the tripod again. Speak, say anything, speak, speak, lots. The woman began talking again, telling the tripod who she was and what she needed. The box turned away from her and moved towards the crowd. Food! Show food! it said, holding out its hands. Garth was about to run to the kitchen to get some when Vothra slowly stepped forwards, holding out the open can of vegetables that she still carried. The box moved forward on its treads and took the can from her. The crowd shouted in despair as the box upended the can into a hole at its back. That one can was more food than most people had eaten in days. No worries, the box said. Make food for all, many food, make line, make line for food for all, water for all. Garth saw several boxes come forward with bowls and a long table, while a much larger device followed behind them. The large device came to a stop and several ports opened up, much to the shock of everyone. Each of the boxes placed a bowl in the port and a few seconds later, they pulled out a bowl full of white paste. They placed the bowl on the table and went to get more. Make line, eat food, good food, healthy food, one food per person, the box said. People began to push and shove, trying to reach the food first. They didn't know what these things were, but if the boxes wanted to kill everyone here, all they had to do was wait. Hunger drove the last bit of fear away, and Garth began to fear a riot might start. One of the flying vehicles lit up. An ominous tube had appeared on its front, pointing at the crowd. Make line fighting bad, no fight, food for all, make line, food for all, the box repeated. The crowd slowly shuffled into something resembling a line, and people began to get their balls. The box seemed to watch the crowd for a few minutes, ensuring that it stayed peaceful. Then it spoke again. We will help the sick, but we need to learn. Healthy people, please come here. You will not be harmed. Healthy people, please come here. You will not be harmed. The words were easier to understand. The accent was still there, but it was making proper sentences, and the words sounded natural. Garth still didn't know who these uh, people were, but for the first time in weeks, he had hope. Without too much hesitation, he stepped forward. When there were ten people lined up, yet another box came towards them, Please follow me to the medical tent, it said in the exact same voice as the first box. They went with the box towards one of the dozens of tents that now dotted the area. Still more were being set up in the distance. It looked like there would be enough to hold everyone in the camp. Stepping into this tent was like a paradise to the ashen howl outside. The air was clean and warm, and there was clean cots to lie on. They would barely hold Ka'ath but they would be better than the hard ground and filthy blanket that he'd been using. Lie down, please, and relax, the box said. This will feel strange. Why are you speaking more clearly now? Kaath asked as he went to a cot. We are learning your language. We knew little from the Gradios, but hearing you speak is letting us learn more quickly, it replied. Now please lie down. The faster we do this, the faster we can help. Lying down, Ka'ath felt the cot shift to fit his body better. There was a faint buzzing noise and he felt something press against his arm, causing him to jerk away. Something that looked like a needle was attached to his arm. It didn't hurt, in fact, he didn't feel much of anything from it. He resisted the urge to touch it and laid back down, wondering what was happening. As he breathed in the clean air, he began to feel cold. It started in his arm where the needle was stuck and moved towards his stomach. He tried not to groan as his stomach roiled. somewhat vomited, and the tent was soon full of retching coughs and groans. The boxes had poisoned them, whether by accident or on purpose. Garth knew that he wouldn't leave this tent alive. The poison began to move up his chest towards his first heart. He reached for the needle to rip it off and felt his body... A He couldn't move anything below his head. Even trying to speak did nothing but cause a faint whimper. Please don't struggle, the box said. We are doing an emergency procedure to learn your biology as quickly as possible. It is painful and very uncomfortable, but it must be done. The easier method would take many hours, and each hour wasted means more of your people will die. Garth barely heard it. The panic, nausea, and pain was too overwhelming. As the cold reached his head, sheer terror sent him into unconsciousness. Kaath slowly came to. He didn't know where he was. He was too comfortable and warm to still be at a camp. For the first time in weeks, he didn't itch. And as he moved his digits, he didn't feel the gritty ash rubbing against his skin. There was quiet talking and snoring around him. That was different, too. There should be crying, wailing, and coughs of dying. Briefly, he wondered if he'd died, and this was paradise. Ah, you're awake. I want you to take your time and slowly open your eyes, a voice said. You're going to see something surprising, but don't worry. You're safe and everything is going to be okay. Nothing could be more surprising than what he'd already seen. Ka'an thought as his memories returned to him. Still, he steeled himself before looking at the speaker. He wasn't ready for what he saw. The speaker wasn't a box, but a living, breathing something. It was hairless with two long arms just below its small head. It was wearing a long white coat with a red cross on its front. Sir Garth couldn't make out much of the body, but it was very skinny. Two tiny eyes looked down at him but most of the thing's face was covered by a mask. What are you? he asked. We're humans, the creature said. We come from another planet that is actually pretty close to here. One of our scout ships found your planet just after the asteroid hit. When we learned what had happened, we grabbed everything we could and came running. This is actually a pretty big deal for us. We've never seen an idiot before today. Garth didn't know what to say. The philosophers had debated if there was life amongst the stars. But to discover that it was true, to see them face to face, to have them come and save these people, it was too much. Why did you do all of this? You were in trouble. What kind of neighbors would we be if we didn't help out? The human said. End of story. I just want to give a quick thanks to the tier 5 channel members and patrons. Bob the Dragon, Data Magnet, Sergeant Puma, Cat Crab Lobster, and Duck Machine. Thank you very much for the support. It is much appreciated. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.